are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You you called and then I then I called you back because it was ringing it was ringing in the wrong spot. You know that happens now that they updated Skype because uh, when you called me it was ringing on my phone and on my desktop and right. so I answered you on my uh, desktop. Uh, you didn't you didn't just answer your phone this morning? Not <laughs> well, not, not from me. Not when it was <laughs> Skype. <clears throat> I never I never uh, talk on phone on my uh, Skype on my phone. Me either. Me either. I don't even. I think we we did that one one time. Um. And, uh, where I think I talked to Manan Sharma and one of our guests, we, he called using Skype on his phone Mm. and it worked, it worked okay. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's it's as good as a phone call, I'm sure. So yeah. 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 My, my audio settings were all, were all screwed up because I did a, uh, uh, TV Skype interview, and so the they didn't want me they didn't want me wearing headphones, and they didn't want to see my microphone, and so I uh, <laughs> had to uh, had to 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 reconfigure everything, and then anyway, it just took a little look, took a little bit. So where did you put and, your microphone? Oh, just down in my lap. Like, <laughs> oh, just, oh, okay. It's on, a, it's on a boom, right? It was on a boom, and so I just moved it. I just moved it out of frame of the of the video. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, that's uh, hilarious. Um, that. So you did a bunch of interviews last week or a couple of interviews. I, I tried to do a couple, but then I got a bunch of things turned down. Um, so, oh. yeah. Well, that's so, too bad. It is. It is. So so people were really interested in Chipotle last week, at least. Um, that's uh, that's how I received a couple of calls. And um, I – on two occasions on, on Wednesday um, – so for, for listeners who are not super up to date in the world of uh, food safety, um, one of our one of our favorite uh, restaurants to, to have outbreaks uh, was has been linked to another outbreak uh, and one one outlet in uh, Ohio. And it's I, it's still early on. This was Wednesday. We're, we're recording here Monday. But um, I mean, there is no indication of the pathogen, um, at least up until yesterday. So maybe maybe something will break today. But. Um, and there's like lots of people sick, like is somewhere in between a hundred and 600 people. Um, so, so when, uh, the, uh, outbreak was announced, the stocks of Chipotle just like tanked and, and dropped. So all the calls that I got were, were from like CNBC and wall street journal, like, uh, you know, places that are not public health, uh, folks usually, but, but <clears throat> business folks, um, and, and then, they were asking you about the take the stock advice. Like yeah, stock advice. Dump their stock. Buy, sell, sell, buy, buy. Uh, which is that's my my standard answer. Buy, buy low, sell, sell high. Sell high. That's a good one. I I've never heard that before. Yeah, uh, supply. Uh, you know, you got to look at supply and demand, Don. Gotta, don't get high on your own supply. Is that is that the same thing? <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think so. I think you're thinking of uh, of whippets, uh, maybe uh, from a from a Grateful Dead concert. Um, so. Uh, so anyway, that's like the dog, right? I think so. It's like a, it's a, a nice little, a nice little dog. Um, oh, speaking of nice little dog, do you hear that? No, but there's a nice oh. little dog that's that's come in as a guest. No, well, there's a little dog outside my office. I closed my office door, um, but there's a nice little dog that decided to be time to do a nice little uh, head shake, which gave a, uh, a, a jingle of the dog tags. A little foley, little, uh, little, little, little foley, <laughs> little foley for the podcast. I, I have a nice little dog here who I'm sure will make. Uh, an appearance because as soon as I start talking to you, he really wants to be in my office. So my, my office door is open um, and he's allowed upstairs and he'll probably come in here and then make this um, 
like disappointed noise because I'm not going to pet them um, mm-hmm. to, to the fullest of my uh, availability. Um, so uh, the the Chipotle folks were were really uh, or uh, all these people wanted to, to interview me. Well, two people. Um, and all these people. Well, all these you know. people. Uh, yeah. So many. But they wanted me on on camera, and so I said, "Okay, well, if you find me find me a studio, I'll go." Uh, I I drove home to get a jacket and and, and to mm. gussy up a little bit, oh. um, and then uh, got a call from one of them saying, "Yeah, we can't can't find a can't find anywhere to to do it." And I said, "Would Skype work?" And they said, "No, we we don't want to do that." And and then three hours later, I got another call from uh, from CBS the the morning show whatever they call it. today the CBS this morning whatever it is. Um, and they wanted to record something and same story. I was like, I'm ready. Uh, you know, five, this, you know, eight, eight, uh, seven o'clock at night. Like, uh, I've got a hockey game at 1030. If you can get me to a studio before my hockey game, uh, I'll, I'll do it. And they said, no, no studios available. It's a busy, busy night in Raleigh, Raleigh studios. Huh. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I also had the opportunity to do, uh, it wasn't Chipotle specific. It was more like, what's up with all these outbreaks? Um, and they wanted me, um, cause apparently it had become news because I mean, if they're, if they're calling you and me to get us on the camera, it's that, you know, that that's not, the president must not have tweeted recently or something. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so food safety was in the news. Um, and yeah, and I, I just was out of town. I was in DC, uh, last week, going back uh, again this week, and uh, I was just not available, and I could have I could have pushed it a little bit, but it was a travel day, and I just said I'm traveling, so I'm not I'm not available on the first day you wanted me, and the next day I'm I'm traveling. So and then and then Thursday, I was working from home, and I had a meeting, uh, Freehold Borough um, meeting that I was going to go to, that I was committed to go to, and Fox News called, and they said, hey, can we can we Skype interview with you about? Um, uh, about all these salad outbreaks, and I said sure, but I've got a meeting, and they're they're very nice. They they worked around me, and so we yeah. I don't I never did I never did see um, the what they put what they what they put up on the on the website or what they put on the news, but um, it was I, you know I can send you the video. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Skull recorder is always running. Right, right. You can show you can show the the raw file on your the, end. yeah the raw footage right. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I <clears throat> th- this. The media stuff is – I mean it goes in waves. I mean you and I, we yep. we, we do this stuff uh, quite a bit. And it's funny where all of a sudden for, for two or three days, everyone wants to talk about it and then it goes away. And, and it's – it's fleeting, right? Like you kind of, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not, if, 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 if you're not available, um, it's not going to be news by the time that you are available. And so you either, and this is, this was something that I realized, I guess, fairly early on in my career. And, and, you know, and it's, you you just got to, and you got to realize it's like, honestly, Ben, it's like getting papers published or getting grants. It's a lot of luck, right? It's a lot of being in the right place at the right time. And then the winds align, you know, and 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 then it happens. And uh, and if it doesn't happen, you just you can't worry about it because there's just going to be there's you got to realize there's going to be other opportunities. Right, right, and and sometimes um, I, this is the most terrible part. I really just like to do TV so I can show my kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> How yeah. terrible is that, right? No, it's, it's not terrible at all. It, you know, the rest the the rest of the media stuff's like fairly. You know, for the most part, I could do it while I'm. 
sitting wherever, if I'm in the car, if I'm, I've got 15 minutes to do an interview for print or, um, even radio, it's, it's pretty, um, low impact and then low reward. Cause my, I, there's not much that I can show my kids. Um, but if I was, if I, you know, recorded something, um, and I happen to be on TV, they, they seem to like that. So I, I don't know. It's, it's funny, right? Like it's, uh, so, uh, my, my goal is just to look cool as mu- as cool as possible, uh, uh, for as long as possible to my two children. Um, and at some point they'll outgrow that or maybe well, they'll, and, they'll find it again when they get older. Yeah. And, and it was, yeah, you know, for a while there, um, I was, they were asking me to come into New York. They would send a black car and to, to go be, you know, a talking head on a show. And it happened a bunch of times and, and a bunch of times my kids came with me in the black, in the black car, oh, that's in, cool. in the black car limo, which is, which is very cool. Um, but yeah, it gets, it gets old quick. I would say that the, the single, the single most, imp- and I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again because it's good. The most impressive thing out of every single thing that I've done in my entire career was when I told my kids that I was on, um, McDonald's food safety advisory committee, right? Because that was something that they're like, really for McDonald's? <laughs> You know, I mean, that was and more important than serving on a National Academy of Sciences, uh, multiple, excuse me, multiple National Academy of Sciences committees, uh, more important than serving on the National Advisory Committee uh, for microbiological criteria for foods, more important than being elected president. Of, I, mean, I, I yeah. guess that by the time I was president of IAFP, they kind of <clears throat> they kind of were older and could appreciate the the broader perspective. But really, I mean, yeah, it would be it would be cool if I was on TV. But honestly, um, being on McDonald's food safety uh, advisory committee was the was was the thing because that that meant you know more than anything else to them. Which I just I think that's still quite funny. I mean, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it too. Don't get me wrong. I'm proud of it too, but it's just, it's just very funny that that was, um, that's it. That's something that was, that was, did it, did, that did it for them. Yeah. Like, like every, you know, every, not every corner, but anywhere you drive, doesn't matter where it is, you're going to see McDonald's and, and you were, uh, you know, part of the advisory committee that looked, made sure that those franchisees were keeping food safe. I, right. Like it's so ubiquitous to kids and it's, it's like, uh, it, it's like if you were running, uh, or helping with food safety at Chuck E. Cheese. Right. Yeah, right. Where it's, right. Yeah. That's, that's where they, where they connect. Oh man. Um, so oh, and just before we completely leave yeah. the topic of news, the, the other thing, uh, that was most definitely in the news, uh, this week was, um, um, the, uh, the idea or the, 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 the fact that somebody found, um, uh, worms in fish right. in New Jersey. Um, and so, uh, I just clicked on what I thought was the video that I saved. And instead it is, uh, something about, uh, uh, uh Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. So yeah, it's also um, good. I'm, I'm uh, I, I don't know how that, uh, that's uh, Oh, you know what it is? It's the, it's the software that I use to put stuff in the, <clears throat> In the Dropbox, it it doesn't go based on the web page I'm on. It goes based on the thing in the clipboard, and so I must have been uh, tweet, <laughs> tweeting with somebody about. I think I know what it was. I was responding to a uh, a tweet from from somebody and and was quoting. Uh, uh, so I amuse you. Um, do I amuse you? Uh, the the scene from Goodfellas. Uh, <laughs> But uh, that was what was in the buffer, so I don't have a link to uh, the story on NewJersey.com. But we can we can find it. So basically, the the story was that, and this so this happened this again. The story broke last week while I was in Washington. Uh, the story uh, uh, started over the weekend when someone went to a <clears throat> a popular restaurant in 
uh, on the shore, on uh, the Jersey Shore, and they found a worm in their fish, and uh, they videotaped it because this is the this these are the days of social media, and they they posted it, and. <clears throat> There's a story on NewJersey.com. It went uh, pretty pretty viral, and so then after the story broke, um, and then you know, and the, I don't think the restaurant did necessarily a fantastic job in terms of public relations. They didn't come across uh, as too too terribly sympathetic, um, and then uh, and then the folks reached out to get a more scientific perspective, and so I had to very quickly um, get up to speed on uh, worms and fish. And, and so I, I didn't realize that it was, it's really, there's a lot that we don't know about, or not, or not a lot that's maybe it's, it's hard to find out what, like what's what, because uh, there's plenty of stuff on anasychiasis, which is a parasite, a worm parasite that's found in fish. But if you do a this particular fish where the worm was found, uh, the kind of fish was cod. And if you do a search on worms in cod, what you find is a completely different species that only appears to be pathogenic for cod and does not appear to be pathogenic for humans. And that uh, that subtlety that was one of the, the the points that I wanted to get out in my story in my interview, which I think I I, I did relatively successfully. But it's still. Um, it's, it's because of the way we search for stuff on the internet now, it's, it was, it was, you know, it, the, the, the search would go totally differently depending upon whether I put worms in fish or worms in codfish or worms okay. in cod. Um, and again, it wasn't only, it was only because I really didn't know, I wanted to get my, you know, get my, my, my thoughts in order and get, you know, get my story straight. Well, how was I was going to, to, to pitch this in the, in the news, in the news article, um, that I had to do a little bit of research, but it turns out it's as, you know, as, as so often on this show, it turns out it's a little more complicated, uh, than perhaps, uh, we thought. And it depends upon what kind of worms. And, and of course, uh, based on a video, uh, unless you, I mean, maybe if you're a, a fish parasite expert, you could look at the worm on the video and tell what it was. But I mean, they, you know, to my to my way of looking, things are all little little white worms that you know people find in fish. So, is this the uh, Lerniocera branchialis? I believe that would be correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the it's the cod the cod worm. I, yeah. I had no idea. This is uh, this is why I listen to you. This is why I listen to the show, Don. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning stuff today. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so there you go. And that from a risk communication standpoint, that provides a little bit of a. Uh, a challenge, right? So yeah, it's gross to have cod to, to have cod worm that wouldn't be parasitic um, uh, to to us as you know as humans, uh, which is different from from other uh, worms that we would commonly associate it with uh, with other you know consuming raw or undercooked um, undercooked fish. And um, so it's a it's a fish it's a fish disease, not a people disease. Right. Exactly. Wow. Um, interesting. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for sharing, sharing that. I, um, the, so I saw the, um, uh, the, the video, uh, I saw some, some Washington post, uh, coverage of the, like the actual, you know, worm, uh, uh, video and it was in, uh, noted, uh, well, I don't know the, the restaurant Stella Marina bar and restaurant, but it's in Asbury park. Yep. And which is uh, home of uh, home of Kevin Smith, uh, who we've talked to multiple or talked to, not talked to, talked about uh, multiple times. One of my favorite directors. Um, so Wait, Asbury Park, Kevin Smith. No, he he's in he lives in Red Bank or he's from Red Bank. I thought he was Asbury Park. No, you're thinking of Bruce Springsteen. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're probably right. Wrong, wrong New Jersey. Person. Wrong New Jersey. Yeah, John Bon Jovi. 
But yes, those, well, that's that would be uh, neither of those places. John Bon Jovi would be. Hold on, um, Spotswood. Uh, look at that. I think I don't know. Well, look at that. Maybe is there an S? Is there one of his? Uh, does Kevin Smith have his his uh, a comic shop? Maybe in Ashbury Park. He, Ashbury he, Park. He, he might. He might. I like to. I like to mispronounce it, uh, which I just did as Ashbury Park. Ashbury Park. Yeah, that's what uh, native New Jerseyans say when is you're from the Garden say? State. Yeah. When they go to the beach. When they go to the beach. When they go, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. When they go to the beach. Uh, oh man, uh, it's early, it's early, Don. It's early. Um, Perth Amboy. Perth Amboy. Is where John Bon Jovi is from, which is a different place, also on the shore. Um, and Sayreville, that's where that's where he went to school. Sayreville. All right. So we'll we we apologize to the 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 two John Bon Jovi fans that listen to the podcast <laughs> and the Kevin Smith, uh, not Kevin Smith from FDA fans. Uh, yes, yes Kevin, exactly. Kevin Smith from. Yeah. NRA, the, the the one that doesn't kill people. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, well, actually, expects it for food poisoning, but anyway. Oh, true, true, true. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so uh, the, we, you and I, you know, we we usually like to start off the the podcast uh, with things that are not food safety, and we just kind of jumped into some food safety stuff. But I do have one thing that I wanted to um, bring bring to your attention. If you have not watched, it's it, it's not a lot of. Um, commitment, but it is uh, a, a show on um, uh, Showtime that Sasha Baron Cohen has oh, put together. Yes, yes. Uh, I think it is. It's, this is America. This, yeah, uh, no. Who is America? Who is America? Who is America? Anyway, I didn't know. So um, it's it's a, a fascinating show. I've enjoyed every episode, but um, I, it led me to some something else. So I didn't realize this until I watched last night's episode. Um, that Nathan Fielding, do you, have you ever heard of, uh, uh, you know who Nathan Fielding is? Have you heard that I, name? I have, I have not. Okay. So Nathan Fielding is, of course, this is the part of the podcast where I talk about, he's from Canada. Um, oh. he, he's a, you, uh, do you know him? I, well, I, I mean, I know of him. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, I don't know all the people in Canada, but I, I know, uh, I, well, I, I mean, I, I'm, we're, we might be related. Uh, so so Nathan, sorry, not Nathan Fielding. Nathan Fielder. I even got his name wrong. Uh, the Fielders. Uh, so he he used to be a comedian on a show in Canada called This Hour Is Twenty Two Minutes, which Danny and I like love. Um, and he had this segment um, that was really like budget. Uh, it was called Nathan on Your Side, and and he, um, he sort of was playing a a, a person uh, like a. Uh, one of those like local TV personalities who someone calls in and says, you know, I found worms in my, uh, in my fish and, and he would go investigate it, but do it with a really dry sense of humor. And then that led into a show that you should check out called Nathan for you on comedy central. Anyway, he also writes and directs, um, who is America. Um, oh, so, and okay. I didn't, I didn't catch that, but his, his style of comedy, I really, really like. Um, and so the Nathan for you, it's, I think three or four seasons now. And it, he, the premise of the show is he works with a, a business unsuspecting to them that they're going to be on TV to come up with, um, like a new concept that will take their business to the next level. And the most famous one was something called dumb Starbucks coffee, which he ended up like, I think getting sued for, um, for copyright infringement, 
But the idea was he went to a, a coffee shop and said, well, you know, Starbucks does a really good job. So why don't, instead of being like sar- smart and sophisticated Starbucks, why doesn't your coffee just be dumb Starbucks? Uh, and so it was a whole, a whole show on how would you outfit a, a restaurant with, with the logo of dumb Starbucks? <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Uh, and from the Wikipedia page, there were things uh, using the term dumb in front of it, such as dumb Nora Jones duets as one of the CDs that Star- that the dumb Starbucks would uh, sell and dumb iced vanilla lattes. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, it was pretty good. Very good. So anyway, check out check those two, two shows out because we, we've been very much enjoying them. Well, yeah, and so I, there's two things I want to recommend, and the, the the second one I'm completely blanking on even the actor's name. But the first one, and I, I'm, I am very late to the party on this, um, so apologies to everybody who listens who's already seen this. But Thor Ragnarok, what what a great movie! Have you seen it yet? I, no, we haven't. So we um, we are going through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, oh, in order? In order, yeah. So we, we have not, um, we're not there yet. Uh, but it's weird. We're going from, as as we've talked about in the podcast world, we're going from both ends because we kind of came into the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, in, in a weird spot and then decided to skip all the Thor movies and then just watch those in order. But um, we, I'm, yeah, I, we watched uh, Iron Man 3 last week and it was really awesome. So, But Thor Ragnarok is fun. That's it's one I need to watch. Is, is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, it's highly. High. I mean, I, I don't think I've seen any of the other sto- Thors, and I think that this is the third one. And I think Kristen has seen them on airplanes and stuff. Um, but she she really she really liked it too. So um, yeah. Oh, and the the thing that I want to recommend, the other thing that I want to recommend, because the internet is amazing. So I just typed in uh, British homo sex scandal, um, and I even misspelled British and homo, um, and and it and it and it comes up with uh, on the first page um, something called a very very British sex scandal. And so this is a – basically it's a docudrama. Um, it is uh, – let's see. Um, Jeremy Thorpe is the uh, disgraced uh, Liberal Party leader. Um, uh, Hugh Grant, this is an, an, old, an older Hugh Grant playing uh, this closeted um, British Liberal Party leader. And it's just – it's – he is – I mean so Hugh Grant is amazing and it's – I'm 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 delighted that he can still have a career as a as an older <laughs> an older actor um, uh, instead of a young pretty boy and it's just it's really good it's it's a dramatization it's based on a a, a book that that dramatized the the actual real life um, sex scandal but it's uh, yeah 1976 Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe's career was approaching its eventual disintegration due to its, his alleged involvement in a conspiracy to murder his one time lover Norman Scott and it's just it's really – it's just uh, – you know, it's very British. Cool. Uh, so of course, we liked it. So anyway, so I, I would give a thumbs up to that. So you watch that on the Acorn? Uh, that was on uh, – no. I think that was on um, the um, uh, Amazon Prime. All right. Yeah, Amazon cool. Prime I think, but yeah. Well, that's that's cool. Good stuff. Um, well, uh, yeah, that's – we – so – Updates in, in my life, because I always like to share what's going on. Uh, we have one child this week who is at camp, uh, sleepaway camp. Jack is is gone for the week. And then Sam started school last week. So so the we are in this, like, weird mm. spot where, where one, you know, some of us are on summer vacation and some of us are not. Mm. Me- meaning only one is, is not. He's on at school. And so when we dropped, dropped Jack at, uh, at camp last night, Sam was, I think, a little bit... 
he in in the past when this has happened, he was totally fine, you know, having you know being an only child for a week. But I think he he had wished that he also had gone to overnight camp, and I think it's finally hit him that he's not he's going to school, which is fun, but not nearly as much fun. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So, and is there ever a situation where it's reversed, where the the one is yes. going to camp and the other's going to school? Yes, 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 okay. yes. Um, so yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it is, um, as they get older, the, the emotion around this thing, uh, changes a, a little bit. Um, but yeah, in, in October, Sam will be out for three weeks or almost three weeks and Jack will be in school. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be reversed. And, and so, you, so what we're trying to do in the, you know, like be a good parent kind of way is promise Sam things like, well, you know, you'll get to go to camp for two weeks when Jack's in school and every day you'll be able to, um, uh, you know, sort of rub it into him as he gets taken to school and you go to camp and, and do fun things, which is not the, probably the best way to handle it, <laughs> but well, it was and, managing and, the know, situation. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope it worked. My, my experience, kids are, are very often like dogs. They just live in the moment. Yes. So really, unless, unless it's going on right now, they really don't care about it. So the idea that in, in several months, the tables will be turned, it means nothing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. At least right right now for about 20 seconds, and then we took him for, like, the largest ice cream ever. Uh, it made him feel a little bit better uh, because he could think about it. Uh, but then immediately he forgot about it. Uh, and then this morning it was he, – he was – there was – it was a struggle to get him to school. Um, but, yeah, so that's – and then my uh, – not not to OPSEC too much, uh, but my parents are, are coming to visit uh, for about 10 days. Uh, so they're going to arrive on, mm. on Thursday. So we're preparing for – for them and uh yes we've that, th- this is uh that's that's what's going on that's uh, and yeah and you uh, you are unfortunately going to uh or not unfortunately i'm unfortunately not going to make it but we are going to um uh you're you're on your way to to dc to a meeting uh on the F- fsbca leadership and i'm not uh, i'm not going to make it to this one nope Nope, uh you're not and uh, we'll talk about you find you back of course you will Donna Garen and i yeah. will cuz she's going to be there Hello. Oh, hello. Sorry. <laughs> Don, yes, Donna Garen will be there, and you'll talk about me. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I just uh, I didn't know if I suddenly suddenly after 160 something episodes if I finally crossed the line and offended you. <laughs> no, it was like it's like that page on the internet where you you get it and it says, "Oh, congratulations! You've read the last page of the internet." That was just the oh. end of the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, no, no. Um. So I want to uh, – there's so much stuff I want to talk to you about, Don. And we – you and I exchanged a bunch of texts on this. And I know we, there's like feedback. We'll get to all feedback stuff. But what I really like really want to talk to you about, um, first of all, is this – is kind of a fascinating one that you have entitled, Turns Out Betteridge is Wrong. Um, uh-huh. And it's about cockroaches. And I want to talk to you about this one because this is th- – this – we could do an entire episode on this. Um, so – uh, let me, let me read. Oh, I'm going to have to go to the actual, uh, article, um, here, but, it, but this is from the New York times and it was a Q and a from this weekend. And it was all about do cockroaches carry diseases? Um, New York times. So this is like a really kind of fascinating one. So the question is, it's well known that mosquitoes, fleas, lice, and ticks transmit human diseases, but what about cockroaches? And answer, um, and the answer is from um, C. Claiborne Ray. 
Proven health risks of cockroach infestation seem to be predominantly those of filth, food contamination, and allergic asthma rather than direct transmission of disease, according to extensive review by WHO. Um, and so I, I had a chance to take a look at the WHO um, review, and mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you. So I, I don't know how this came up, but you were tweeting with somebody about this, right? Yeah. So how, how it came up is – so I <clears> – <throat> I subscribe to the New York Times and the Washington Post, and every day they both send me emails. And uh, usually, the stuff from the New York Times is just not that interesting. I, to me, like the, I know the New York Times is supposed to be the paper of record, but to me, the Washington Post has become just way more interesting. Uh, mostly, I think because they do a better job of reporting about the current political situation. Um, but I will occasionally look at what, and, and they, for whatever reason, their algorithms are better. Like they just send me stuff that I click on. Uh, uh, whereas the New York Times is not so much, but this one is like, oh well, okay, this is interesting. I I I'm kind of interested in this, and I dug in a little bit, and I saw um, that uh, that first link. And so you know, my thing, and we'll talk about this um, uh, for a couple of other things later in the podcast. My thing is to read news stories and then to see what the scientific support for that is, and then to try wherever I can go and go read the the primary scientific literature, and then form my own opinion, and then come back and try and tweet about that. And so. So this article showed up in my inbox along with the links to a bunch of other articles. I read it, and I did exactly what you did. So I went to uh, the, and you know, thankfully they did provide a, a link, and so the 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 Times, the short the short Times Q and A links to uh, a basically a book entitled yeah. Public Public Health Significance. They call it a report, but it's really a book. Uh, Public Health Significance of Urban Pests, uh, which is a, a book from 2008. It's got um, 15 chapters covering everything from allergic asthma to through cockroaches to integrated pest management, um, talking about all kinds of other uh, pests in between. And it just didn't – something didn't add up to me. It's like the the story didn't didn't make didn't didn't make sense. It's like well cockroaches so the the headline is do cockroaches carry diseases? I think the answer is yes, yes. or at least they call, they call, they they carry microorganisms that are known to cause disease. Um the story, or the, the you know, it's, it's charitable calling it a story. The 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 text that appears is, um, the, you know, it parses it to my mind a little bit too finely. And so again, as you said, as you read, and I'll read again, the proven health risks of cockroach infestation seem to be predominantly those of filth, food contamination, and allergic asthma, rather than direct transmission of disease. So what that's saying is, oh, okay, well, so cockroaches have salmonella, and they can. Sp- put salmonella on your food, but that doesn't mean that the cockroach caused you to get sick. It just means that it just put the salmonella on the food, which to me is, it's, it's ludicrous, right? It's like, well, yeah, okay. If the cockroach that has salmonella on its feet ran into your mouth, um, (laughs) you could get sick or, I mean, so what, what does it mean to, to directly transmit disease? It's just, to me, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it seems to me like they're just making this into something they're parsing it too finely for to make a pedantic point which is not relevant to the fact that you know we shouldn't have cockroaches in our houses or in uh, our restaurants because they do spread disease right right well and and this is one so this is one where i th- i, I want to lead into something else when we talk about risk right so 
I read this, and as I kind of went through the WHAO report while I was sitting um, beside the pool yesterday uh, while my children were, were fighting, um, the, the, if you, if you kind of like parse through every time it says cockroach, it really kind of arrives at the, the thing that cockroaches can appear to be definitively linked to is this um, – is an asthma – a, you know, allergic uh, asthma situation. Um, and while there, there's definitely um, data that shows that cockroaches, as, as you can said, can track or, or, or ha- can pick up pathogens and then be reco- those pathogens be recovered from cockroaches. One of the things that, that I, I constantly go back to is a conversation that I remember reading on the food safe listserv or multiple conversations about flies and other insects led by, um, or at least contributed to by, by some of our favorite folks, Pete Snyder, um, Carl Custer, and I think Robert Labud, Labud, I'm not sure exactly Mm -hmm. how to Labud. Labud. Yeah. And where this is like, it, it becomes this prioritization question where I think Pete to paraphrase him in this area of insects is yes, insects can pick up pathogens. Yes, they can transfer it, but we have no documented evidence that they've ever caused an illness or an outbreak um, from a, from a foodborne pathogen standpoint. And I think that that's like a, a straw man argument, right? Because we we've talked a lot about how um, we often don't know what the source of foodborne illness is, and we don't know what the what the causes are. And it's what where we're missing things, I think, is um, understanding once those pathogens are on any sort of insect, how if it gets transferred back to food, at what level, which pathogens are most likely, what are the factors that are most. Uh, important in first having the insects and cockroaches and, you know, in question here, pick up those pathogens. Does it grow? What, what increases the risk, right? Like, like I think we're, we're, we've been really stuck at this conversation of there's a, there's a theoretical issue here, but I don't think we have a really good sense of what the risk is. And that's not what, what the question was. Right. Um, and so like going back to what it says in, in, in the New York times. And, and this is like, it, nothing in here really talks about risk. It's yes, there are, um, there's, there's data to show transmission, but we, we really don't have a good sense of risk. And, and as I read, I mean, I didn't read the whole 490 pages of the WHO book, but I did focus about 40 minutes looking at cockroaches. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't see anything about the risk. Well, you know and I think, you know what I'm saying? yes, and I think it's, it has to do with this topic that comes up from time to time. And there was a great um, um, roundtable at IFP on this, this this summer is the difference between hazard and risk, right? And so for so long, 
in food safety, we've concentrated on the hazard, right? Do cockroaches represent a hazard? The answer is definitively yes, because the, the cockroaches carry another hazard, which is salmonella, right? And But it doesn't get into, well, what's the probability that if you have co- – I mean, again, again, it gets back to the Petram paper, right? Like one of the factors that I think that they found that probably was not significant was, you know, if you have cockroaches in your facility, what's the chance that that can lead to um, – what, what's does that elevate the probability that they're going to have an outbreak in that restaurant, right? And the answer is probably not. Again, I don't have the paper in front of me, and I'm, I'm wildly speculating here. But so, but does that mean that we shouldn't control cockroaches? And does that mean that there is the risk is is um, is zero? And, and the and the answer is no. no right. Um, so it would. It's much. I just. I just don't think. I don't think the New York Times article was especially helpful. Agreed. Um, yes. Other than pointing me to what's a clearly a very nice WHO resource, um, but but the folks that wrote the resource um, were experts in cockroaches, right? Not experts in risk. Yes. Yeah. And and, and even even the um, like, and this comes down to carefully writing conclusions and discussions, right? So. In the New York Times uh, Q&A, they, link, they cite something that says, quote, definitive evidence that cockroaches are vectors for human disease is still lacking. Um, and that, that is in the, in the conclusions, ex- except they kind of take that out of context, which is really what they're what, – how I think the authors are writing that, that, uh, that report or at least that conclusion is definitive evidence that cockroaches are significant – factors in the risk of human disease is still lacking there they are there's evidence that they that they provide that cockroaches are 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 vectors right like like that's that's there the the issue is uh, does it cause disease in illness right right and yeah and, and i i i screenshotted a, a quote not from the end but from the middle of the article that says Um, However, the prevalence of cockroaches near human and animal wastes, human food, and human environments creates sufficient concern about their role as vectors. Well, I don't know what sufficient concern means, but it's obviously been created. And then the public health threat necessitates the control of cockroaches in food handling areas, hospitals, animal rearing facilities, zoos, and human residences. So so clearly the authors of that chapter are on record as saying this is something we need to control – but there's no definitive evidence that it caused. So I, I I don't know. I mean, so what's the? I guess when I look at it, I think like, what's the? What's the? What's what? What? What action are people going to do differently? Are they going to stop caring about right. cockroaches? I I don't. The article, the, the 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 chapter doesn't say that. No, exactly. Right? Yeah. The chapter says the opposite of that. Yeah. That there's that there's sufficient concern um, to to necessitate control. So yeah, I don't know. The whole thing just ended up. And I, again, I, I do this occasionally, especially on the weekends, as I'll see, you know, I'll see something interesting in the news media and I'll, tra- I'll trace it back and, you know, try to decide how I feel about it. And this just let me, left me feeling kind of irritated and, and not, not very happy with, with anybody, especially me who just spent an hour chasing all that stuff down. A little empty. A little and, empty. And, and, and look, now I've wasted your time too. No, no, you didn't because I, I, I mean, I okay. think this is one of the things that that's like a theme through this entire podcast and 
one of one. I don't know if it was our our stated goal at the start because you know when we did our strategic plan for food safety talk and and got all the stakeholders together and and, and did did all the you know when we whiteboarded this whole thing out. Um, I don't think we logic model Ben. We built a logic. Uh, we, we did a we built a logic model. We we've had. Um, we've had a visioning process. Um, oh, so many visions. Yeah. For, uh, I mean, formative evaluation, Don vision, all the, all the best visions. Um, I, one, one of the things that, that I really, that, that just having this conversation every couple of weeks has helped me with is, is this exact area, which is, is hazard versus risk. And, and I think it's important, even if it's empty in the writing that's out there to call this, to call this out. And, and I want to – I'm going to – I'll throw another sort of piece of of thought as I, as I had when I read this stuff um, on this this weekend, which is a lot of what we do know and, – and Ruth Petran's paper is a, is a perfect example – is based on outbreaks because that's where we look at things. Is, uh, do we know anything or – and I shouldn't say anything, but I, I would guess we know very, very, very little uh, about – the um, risk that insects pose in, in in leading to sporadic cases of foodborne illness, and and that may be part of the part of the answer here, right? Like that that and and this comes back to one of the things that that Pete kind of harped about a lot, which is which which makes which is a good place to start and makes me think, which is well, we can't show any outbreaks that have been linked to this, but but there might be sporadic cases that we just will never identify um that that were linked to this um and just the the, the whole process of how we investigate foodborne illnesses it's not you know it, it's not built to to find sporadic cases right like how would you even how would you even do it but but that's part of the i, I guess our our challenge in in managing food safety is is we have to we've got to weigh all this stuff and, and then make some sort of an educated guess on whether cockroaches matter or not um, well, and and, and this this is why this is why we we or I, I choose to do risk assessment because risk assessment lets us answer questions like this. And I, I reviewed an article for JFP recently on uh, cross contamination via flies, and you know one of the things that they said was that they were the the first they're the first ones to show this. And I was like, well, actually, no, not really, because uh, there's a great paper by Bob Buchanan back when he worked at FDA uh, looking at fruit flies and transmission of E. coli via fruit flies. And then if you if fruit flies get E. coli on them and then they go to an apple that has a wound on it uh, and they walk on that wound, guess what? You can get amplification of E. coli in the that wound on that apple that's been s- spread by the fruit flies. And you could if you again, if you especially if you had the right kind of modeling techniques, you could uh, actually build a model that would say, okay, well, what if we have you know uh, th- th- this degree of fruit fly control or that degree of fruit fly control and this level of contamination coming in and this number of bruised apples, and you could actually do a risk assessment that would show how much those different factors matter, right? And so we we can at least if you believe that models are useful, you could at least build some models that would tell you about that. So. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I just texted you a, an article mm-hmm. that goes back to uh, 1970, looking at um, colonization of salmonella within um, houseflies, and and so it's not it's not an area that that has that that's brand new, right? Like it's it's been discussed for um, for for quite some 
quite some time and, and probably, and, and this will sort of outsteps the area that you and I focus on, but probably a lot of this work or a lot of the important work has really been done, not in the food world, but in the disease transmission in animal entomology. Um, and looking at, um, Campylobacter and, uh, in salmonella that, that affects, um, poultry, for instance, moving throughout a, a poultry house, uh, via flies and moving from house to house, uh, via flies. So it's, it's one, it's one of those areas where it, um, you know, the, the, the quick answer I think is do insects matter and, and it's, and it's probably but what the the caveat is but we really don't know how much right right and if we, and if you're going to take a risk based approach the question is how much time do you spend controlling cockroaches or fruit flies or domestic house flies versus other things yep. right and and that, that the answer to that is we don't know but in the absence of other things do should do something right i mean you yeah so do you so on the let's talk flies and, and cockroaches a little more one of the things that, that we – here we are in uh, insect safety talk. Uh, one of the things that, that I see in restaurant inspections, and I'll see if I can find an example here for you in a second, is where an inspector will report – and some states do this, say, okay, well, we walked into the kitchen and there were 26 – no, no, 27 flies flying around. To me, that seems dumb, right? Like to whether it's 26 or 27 or 19 – um, it, it well, seems like magnitudes of, uh, 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 especially in, in this situation, we're probably looking at log, uh, but, but are there flies or aren't there flies and how many is too many and are there cockroaches and aren't there cockroaches and how many is too many? Um, and should we bother counting them? Well, and I would say, I don't really care whether it's 26 or 27, but again, to your earlier point about orders of magnitude, I care if there's two. I care if there's 20. I care if there's 200. I care if there's 2,000 because though that that is going to let me calibrate my assessment of how bad that problem is, right? So, yeah. you know, so yeah, so so I don't really care whether it's 26 or 27, but the fact that you saw 20 something flies, that's different than two flies. Right, right. Right? And that's and it's an, and and whatever the risk is, if the risk of from having a fly is X, having twenty flies means the risk is like versus two is ten X, right, or or twenty X. Well, maybe so it's may, uh, like well, well, yeah. right. We don't know how the risk scales with the number of flies, right, but, right, but, right. But absent anything else, uh, a reasonable approximation is that the risk yes. scales with the number of flies, right? Yeah, yeah. And and then there's um, you know something that that I've often heard talked about when it comes to cockroaches. And again, I don't know, I don't know how true it is because it's kind of outside of my area, which is, well, if you see a cockroach, that means there's X number more that you don't see. Right. right. Like, and it's, and that seems to be more important in cockroaches than it is in flies. Like, no, you know, no one's kind of like, Oh, if you see 10 flies, that means there's 300 flies that are in the walls. But when it comes to cockroaches, which are not typically in the open, um, that, you know, that there seems to be some, some, uh, calculation, uh, that's, that's done. Um, right. okay. So I wanted to move some, to something else that has to do with risk. And I put in this, this actually came up, uh, yesterday, yesterday afternoon, um, last evening. And, um, there, there are three tweets, which I have, um, screenshotted. So you're going to have to line them up and they're listed as unpassed milk cheese, one, two, and three. Um, so here's the, here, here's the, the history on, on this part of the discussion. Uh, someone named health nerd who I do not follow on Twitter, but sounds like someone I probably should, uh, tweets, 
Um, things that are disease, that are a disease risk, no matter how high quality or artisanal, um, number one, raw milk with an asterisk, number two, ceviche, number three, steak tartare with an asterisk, number four, raw water, and number five, most under or uncooked meat. Um, and then the asterisk is to note, note, yes. And this is again, asterisks on raw milk and steak tartare, uh, noting a, a, a common, um, part of the conversation or myth out there. Yes. Even if the cow was the most expensive cow in the world. So, um, uh, friend, friend of the podcast, uh, friend, uh, friend in real life, um, uh, uh, Michael Bazzacco res- responds and said, I would also steer well clear of any uh, artisan soft cheeses if you're immunocompromised in any way, pregnant or especially raw milk cheeses. And this is where the conversation gets kind of fun. Um, so uh, Beth Squarecki, who I think has interviewed both of us um, and someone who I follow on Twitter, Beth writes for, um, uh, I think it's Lifehacker. Uh, let's see, Squarecki. Uh, anyway, she, uh, she writes, um, back and said grocery store. Yeah. Life, ho- life, life hacker and, uh, vital S S L H. I don't know what that is. Uh, she says grocery store soft cheese is all pasteurized in the U S the raw milk stuff is out there. Homemade queso fresco, for example, but not common source. I was pregnant three times and read all the labels. <laughs> good, good for you, Beth. Good which which is good. Yeah. And so Mike, Mike responds, Michael responds. Uh, raw milk cheese is higher risk. Personally, I would avoid all soft ripened cheeses if I was pregnant or advising someone who was. And then this is where this third tweet is really where I want to talk to you about. Mm. And it, and Beth's response is pasteurized soft cheese isn't going to be much higher risk than, say, salad, is it? When you're telling people to avoid something for nine months, you've got to remember there's a benefit side to the risk-benefit equation. Can't make everything off limits. And so this – I mean this is in our wheelhouse. This is a – uh, risk communication and a, um, uh, risk assessment, risk management, um, decision when we get into both like, um, what's, what's good and what's, what's not good. And what do we advise people to do? So, so what's your, what's your take on this? Wow. I, it's a good, first of all, it's a good question, Beth. Um, I don't know. Um, because, we're comparing we're comparing different things, right? Uh, with pregnant women, they are especially susceptible to listeria, and so I would say, um, well, and it's just pasteurized soft cheese. So, right, uh, pasteurized soft cheese isn't going to be much higher risk than salad. I would say pasteurized soft cheese is not higher risk than salad. In fact, I would say it is lower risk than salad, and so. No, I think I think if you uh, if you like soft cheese and you are a pregnant woman and you want to eat pasteurized soft cheese and I I would, I would qualify that with from uh, a reputable company, right? Uh, a company that you know is a name brand you recognize. Yeah, I I think I think I'm I'm with Beth on this one. I'm I'm going to say that pasteurized soft cheese is okay. So if you're a pregnant woman, yeah, no. So, so this is good. This is where my irrational mind went in around a non. Um, uh, 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 around this conversation. So, so I had, I, I thought about this a lot. Um, I had a text exchange, uh, a little bit about this and, and the way that I, so the question that came up was if I, if, um, which is a little different than what, what Beth had. So the question that I received on this was, um, if would, would you 
advise your pregnant wife to eat pasteurized soft cheese from a farmer's market, which is not really where the conversation was. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so to me, I was like, you know, let me, let me think about this. So, and this is really where we get into the consequence versus risk benefit, uh, side of things. And I said, you know, I would stay away from, from all the unheated soft cheeses, pasteurized or not. But then what I, my, my follow-up to that was, but melted, go for it, right? Like heated, uh, and, I, and I put a temperature towards melt, and I said, if, we, if you got that cheese above 135 um, Fahrenheit, I would, be, I would be happy enough that, that that would be a way to manage it. And so this is where uh, the, I think the risk conversation um, gets a little sticky when it comes to pregnancy and, and – and fetuses and, um, and, and, and consequence, right? So when it comes to, and, and this is like speaking from, um, uh, you know, one, you know, one of, one of many, um, you know, the more people you, you kind of talk about it with one of many, uh, people that at least as a family we went through, um, a miscarriage before Jack was born. And so going like going through that process, put me at much higher uh, heightened awareness and probably had nothing to do with Listeria or nothing else, but the like uh, un or irrational kind of risk management was to say, okay, let's, let's just do, let, let's be extra, extra, extra cautious, even though it may not be realistic. Um, and if it's something that, if it was something that, that, had a, um, a, a health benefit or something where, where Danny had, had been like, you know, I just can't go through my week without some, some brie. Um, then, then I think we would have to try and figure out the best ways to manage it, but it became, and, and this is where I really like what, what Beth kind of said was when you're telling people to avoid something for nine months, you got to remember there's a benefit side. And this is where the having a conversation was like, well, where, how, how big of a benefit is it on a personal, um, choice, personal, uh, preference, like side of things. And it would have been something where I would have just like, you know, I, I think we should just, well, I'll, I will heat all of this, this cheese, um, and, and manage it, uh, just in, just in case that there is a, uh, a failure rate in this, in this soft cheese process. Yeah. And I, the same, the same thing, the, the, the other question that occurred to me, related question would be deli meats, right? And right. so what, what if, if you say no deli meats for nine months, even we, and we know that you, that there are no raw deli meats, right? They're all cooked, yep. right? But, but there still are problems. And then the question becomes, well, you know, do you really, how, how good tasting is a turkey breast, <laughs> um, uh, that's heated. It's, right. it's kind of disgusting. Right. So, but maybe you, you figure out some sort of sous vide process and you cool it back that you, you, so you do the pasteurization yourself and then you cool it back down. I mean, you know, th- those are, I mean, if those are people that people who have the resources can, can do that, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, best question is, is just a, yeah, top notch. So, and I haven't answered it. I wanted to talk about it first. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. know, it, was, it was like floating out there yesterday. And I was like, you know, and I don't, you know, it was really, you know, as you see, 723 last night. So it's still there. Um, so something I'll, I'll weigh in on. 
Um, hey, I gotta walk away for two seconds because the dog has moved into an, a non, um, not an area that he should. He's probably chewing some something of the boys right now. So oh, I will dear. be back. Right. But you, it's do, okay. you do that. Yeah, I'll it'll, I'll uh, I'll make uh, Jeopardy music. It'll be two, yeah. It'll be like twenty seconds. I'll be right back. All right, I'm back. Did you hear me? <laughs> Did you hear me shooing my dog away? I, I heard uh, get yeah, out of there. Uh, jiggly dog noises. Yeah. So um, what what I. I have these two old Canada dry boxes because my house, uh, based on what, what Danny does, there's like salvaged wood things oh, yeah. everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So so we per, we uh, there was a record store that was going out of business and they had all these like perfect size record bins that were out of old Canada dry boxes. And so um, we, Danny was like, go get all of them. So I filled up our van, filled up our car. And I probably – like they were selling for like $2 each and I, I bought like 60 of them. And so Dan- – oh Yeah. So Danny uses them as shelves um, of like containers for her signs so people can like flip through when they're on display because they look – they're really cool. They're old wooden boxes. Um, and then well, – Plus she could like just take the boxes and make those into art too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so she's done that. She sold the boxes as is. Anyway, we're, we're depleting our box um, source. Uh, but I do have two that I use. I don't even know why they're in here, but they're in my office. Um, and they've turned into like the greatest door stops for the dog getting into the room that like my, the kids room. So, uh, except today the dog got really brave and decided to push one over. So now there, there's an extra, there's a third box now. Um, and so he's looking at me right now with, with droopy eyes, like your thanks. Thanks for ruining all my fun. So yeah. I, yeah. So anyway, dog, dog, well, dogs managed. Speaking of, speaking of dogs, you, you, were you following the saga of the, the backyard fence at the Shaft oh, house oh, and the dogs? Oh, oh yes. I you was. Posted, you posted Brett Michaels photos. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah. Anyway, so so your dogs chew, do they do they chew through the fence? Do they like ram through the fence? How did this work? Well, here's the thing: I was in Washington and Kristen was in the house, so we don't know. Oh my god! We just awesome. know. I mean, you know, they could have had help from a third party. This could have been a this could have been a jailbreak situation. You know, really? where, where they were provided with uh, other with help. I could, mean, we don't know. We it, just don't know. Uh, I, my my I suspect that there was some attractive nuisance uh, that they were trying to get to, whether it was a squirrel or a cat or another dog. And uh, I suspect that it was probably a combination of biting um, and uh, uh, pawing, scratching. So, and, but what I, what I also would very much like to know is who was the leader of this, whether it was Bianca or Gibbs, because um, if you look at the space, there's clearly enough space for once the, the bottoms of the fence, uh, slats were busted out there's clearly enough space for bianca to get out gibbs is pretty chubby um but yet somehow he managed to push his way and i think it's a matter of him like really wanting to get out and then also like sort of pushing the fence out a little bit and then scooting his chubby self under so yeah i (laughs) don't know it's uh yeah i want to see video of that Uh, it's not going to happen but i want to see video of the the, of that uh exactly how that jailbreak happened so Yeah, yeah um that's that's hilarious. We we have uh, Stanley's pretty good in our in our backyard. Um, he's he escapes every once in a while and then goes for a tour and then ends up just back. So um, which which is good because we our other dog would have just gone for days uh, if he if if she got out. So um, well yeah, your the fence has been. I, I really enjoyed those pictures and I hope you enjoyed <laughs> my pictures. I could not find. Uh, a, a real picture of of Brett Michael Brett Michaels on a fence, but I did find Sebastian Bach from Skid Row, which I thought was close enough. Close enough, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so, uh, where, where, where else? Where should we go next? Well, we do have a lot of follow up, and I, I always feel bad if we don't do the follow up. So let's try to do let's try to do some follow up. Um, let's start with the oldest follow up first. Um, and so this is uh, from. Um, uh, a listener who says you can read my message, but not my name. Uh, and so I'm going to call this listener uh, Southwest Lava. Uh, and he uh, listener writes, uh, hi, I enjoy the show as you both talk about various food safety topics. It's interesting to hear continuing arguments in regard to TCS food, um, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. We're not going to, but, but that's not as, as the, 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 uh, sorry, cut that out. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Lava's question is not about that. Um, uh, uh, bah, 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 bah. Um, th- uh, first, first question is in regard to food contact surfaces. I work in the dry deserts of the Southwest where molcajeta bowls are used frequently. These are traditionally used to grind stuff, but I have seen it used as a bowl to serve soups in. They are a concern because the molcajeta bowls are made from lava rock and lava rock is not smooth and contains many pores. Do you think the lava rock bowl can be properly sanitized? Um, and then he has another question about beef jerky um, and humidity, which I think we've talked about before, but we can answer that briefly. But the but the lava bowls one's a new one. Um, uh, I do I do in my response I do talk about TCS foods, but we we will will avoid that for now. Um, uh, I've, I've, I personally, this is Don talking now. I have seen such bowls for making uh, guacamole table side. I think there's a yep. really nice uh, restaurant in Washington, DC that does that. Um, it would be important that the bowls be adequately cleaned. Um, if, obviously if there are pores in the bowls, it's going to complicate the cleaning process. Um, I did not look for any peer reviewed publications, but I don't know of any peer reviewed publications, but I, in my mind, maybe it's analogous to the use of wooden cutting boards, and so maybe the best thing is to not use them. But you know, if you if you get the food debris out and you you know sanitize it, I mean, the main thing is like these. I suspect these lava bowls can be made pretty hot because uh, they used to be lava, right? And they probably won't fall apart. And so if you run them through a dish machine um, and you do use a temperature sanitize cycle, um, it's going to work pretty well. I there is a you know there is an issue of like food debris getting trapped in there, but as long as it's properly heated food debris, it's a, it's disgusting, but it's probably not unsafe. So, I guess my advice would be don't do it if you if you can avoid it. But if you have to do it, probably a normal sanitation will take care of it. Um, better it'd be better if you had a way to kind of polish the bowls so that they would have a smooth surface. But I I don't I don't know. I'm. Uh, uh, um, I guess my answer is it's it's a not no risk, but it's a low risk. Do you have any any yeah. thoughts on this? No, no. I mean, I think you hit on the stuff that I was thinking about, which is to um to use that sanitizing sanitizing setting on a dishwasher and using using heat. The only other thing that I would say that and it, it is analogous to wood cutting boards in in the way that you'd mention it is is I guess the importance of drying, right? So right. fortunately, these would be. You know, con- concrete, even, I mean, even ceramic is, is porous. If it's, if it doesn't have a glaze or there's a chip in the glaze, the water will get in there, but the drying, um, aspect, uh, 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 will, um, reduce the, reduce the chance that it's, uh, going to be able to trans transmit any foodborne pathogens. Um, and, uh, just another, another plug, um, uh, for one of our favorites, uh, not not a sponsor of the show, but uh, we want plates. One of our favorite sites, <laughs> uh, which uh, it, um, I've gone to the website today, and uh, today's uh, 
uh, right at the top is a uh, Lego uh, bread basket. Um, and uh, then the other one that I love the best on We Want Plates was uh, an entire meal uh, being um, served out of what looks like a dirty egg carton uh a couple eggs and some toast and yeah so so we want we want plates we want plates don we sure do we sure do oh yeah this is such a great website uh do they do they have a twitter account they they do they have a twitter account they have an instagram they got it all they got okay because i i i don't i don't know if i'm uh, i i don't know if i'm following them on twitter maybe they don't they they don't tweet often enough that i see them but anyway yeah the last stuff you know they don't tweet a whole lot the last one they, they had was from july 31st so yeah uh, but then the good thing about We Want Plates, the Twitter, is that they end up uh, tweeting back or uh, retweeting people's plates. Ah, good. So if you if you ever if you're in a restaurant situation and you see something being served to you that's not on a plate and it, it enrages you or inspires you, please do tweet that at uh, the Twitter account. Uh, just literally, We Want Plates is the name of their Twitter account. Yep, so yep. yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. Uh, so our, uh, our next, uh, bit of feedback here, um, is, uh, from, I think, uh, um, it's Tony Ioni, uh, please share all details freely. Um, and I think it's an I and not an L, uh, in, in, in Tony's name. So that's the way I'm going to, um, uh, pronounce it, uh, messages. Oh, it could be Tony Lenoni. It could be Tony Lenoni. <laughs> I think it's Ioni. Uh, lo- love the show. And I am learning a lot each episode. Recently, my wife and I were getting ready to make soup where ramen, uh, ramen noodles were part of the recipe. The package we had, had in August, 2017, I'm guessing. So by date, uh, I suggest that we throw them out and get a new package. Was this too cautious of me? By the way, we did throw them out and bought a new package. Um, and so, uh, I'm going to take this, uh, this one, uh, quick and then let you, uh, chime in on how you answered, uh, uh, Tony. Uh, but yeah, so I think that from a safety standpoint, um, this is, uh, a, a little bit over, over cautious, um, the dry noodles, uh, shelf stable foods like this, those best buy, sell by use by dates, are um, are really only about quality uh, issues and not not safety. So it is um, it was no less safe on in August 2018 uh, as it was, or in you know this email came in in July, but July 2018 than it was say in July 2017 before that um, that best bef- best before um, used by date, but. Uh, uh, there's definitely a potential for the quality to go down with when it comes to ramen. I guess the, the quality issues would be related to, um, like freshness of the, the, um, spice pack that, that comes with it. Um, and maybe, uh, something related to just you know, like, uh, you know, how those, how those noodles stand up, but, um, not a, not a real, I, I don't think that there's a lot of, um, uh, I, I don't think, oxidation or rancidity would be a real, uh, would be too much of a factor here, um, a year after that date. Yeah. Same, same thing. Uh, if you're talking about risk of something like salmonella, it would be lower over time, especially if you're keeping those noodles at room temperature as most people do. So, um, very, very, uh, little risk. Um, uh, the longer you keep it, in fact, the risk is lower and yeah, it's a quality thing. Probably, um, there might be some texture degradation. There might be, whoops, I didn't mean to hit the bell. That was just accidentally, uh, belled myself. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> on texture de- degradation. I guess that's, yeah, that yeah. was your vote for our show title. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and it just they, – they probably wouldn't taste as good. There might be some oxidation, some flavor degradation. So, yeah, just you just avoided probably eating some low-quality food, but not, not, not a food safety issue. Right, right. And the, um, the heat, uh, you know, going back to your salmonella, um, if, if they were using – you know, following the, the um, directions for, for ramen where they're adding it into boiling water, really, really hot water, that, that heat, wet heat should, should take care of that risk uh, quite nicely as well. Yep. Um, so uh, next, next bit of feedback comes from a friend of the show, uh, uh, Chris Stone, who's a sentient microbe uh, on Twitter. And uh, Chris has been, been uh, with us for a while and, and regularly, regularly provides uh, good feedback. He says, uh, in the excellent show, Bounce of Credulity, episode uh, 160, you had a question about evaporated milk being stored uncovered. Uh, the uh, question answer sounded like it was based in part on the low-ish water activity of condensed milk. I always understood uh, these to. Uh, I'm sorry, the the my my email is uh, a little bit. Um, uh, chopped off here, uh, and basically it has to do with the fact that evaporated milk is not the same as condensed milk. Uh, and Chris asked, does the answer change if it's specifically in reference to evaporated milk? Would the lack of added sugar mean the water activity isn't uh, as low or something like that? Again, um, uh, uh, n- uh, not, uh, not, not exactly sure what, what he's saying because I, I didn't uh, save the message properly. Um, so uh, the writer uh, of the original question did uh, mention both um, uh, evaporated milk and condensed milk, and I, on episode 160, I muddied them together in my answer. Uh, they are uh, different foods for sure. Uh, the good news is that at least uh, with respect to the Food Keeper app, which we referenced in our answer, um, the Food Keeper app uh, basically uh, mixes those two or lumps those two foods together. So, so at least in, according to the answer from Food Keeper, uh, the short the short answer is. It doesn't matter uh, four to five days uh, for either, uh, but condensed milk, which has a higher sugar content, um, might last longer than evaporated milk, but uh, not uh, not necessarily. So, anyway, good good. Thanks for thanks for keeping us uh, straight on the uh, the the answers, Chris. Yeah, and I, I did a little bit of bit of follow up um, on this. So, looking at um, water activity, um, you the the and this is. You know, when you try and find stuff, oh, I lost it here. Um, evaporated milk water activity um, is, is in this range of like 0. 0.90 to 0. 0.94, where condensed milk, um, you know, when we talked about, I think the range that I gave last time was also muddying that, where I think we got as, it was, was kind of like condensed milk and evaporated milk going down as low as 0. 0.87 and up to 0. 0.92. So evaporated milk um, may have a, a higher um, water. Um, water activity. So I don't know if that, like how much that changes your thoughts on this, Don. Um, not really much. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, for so many foods that are, uh, opened and then refrigerated for quality, a good rule of thumb is just a couple of days, right? I mean, whether it's two or three days or four or five days, the main thing is, you know, you should, and I, and I, I'm, talking to myself as much as anybody else, you really should date those things and then rotate them through and don't, don't let them sit around. I mean, 
you know, because food spoils and that's disgusting. So, and, and then it's wasteful if you have to throw it away. I threw out a moldy, a moldy pepper uh, the other day and every time it's like, damn, I, you know, I, I lost that. I lost that one. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I think this is where um, I, I would look at, um, uh, you know, this 0.92, um, I'll, I'll point to chapter seven in your, uh, in the document that you, uh, co-wrote that led to the sort of evaluation of hazards, uh, uh, what are TCS foods and what aren't TCS foods. And we'd be looking at, um, you know, maybe this is in the range of non-TCS food and maybe it's not. And so refrigeration probably, you know, so I, where I kind of went at the last question was, well, maybe it's not even a TCS food. You don't have to even refrigerate it here. I think if we lump those two things together, it's not super clear what the water activity would be because of the ranges of both evaporated and condensed. And so it's probably needs some temperature control (laughs) from a, from a safety standpoint. Well, yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I pulled up the article or the, 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 the paper. I don't think you mean chapter seven because chapter seven is the NSF chapter and eight. Chap- oh, chapter eight. eight. Oh, did you yeah. say chapter eight? Okay, Sorry. yeah. No, so I chapter eight is the, is the, is the framework, and we'll link to that. Yeah, and the, the, so, and, and the answer that we're giving, I mean, and my answer will change depending upon whether I'm talking to a consumer versus a, a, a restaurant versus a food processor. Um, if you're a consumer and you have a water activity meter. First of all, awesome. you're you're listening to the right show. Okay. Welcome. Um, <laughs> and two, you probably should seek professional help. <laughs> exactly. But uh, but but you know if you, if you really if you really want to parse this finely, then you're going to need a pH meter, and you're going to need a water activity meter, and you're going to you know you're going to you're going to want to proceed with with care. Um, and again, I would even say if the issue is, you know, do you store it in the refrigerator or not, you might still want to store it in the refrigerator for, for quality purposes. There is there is fat um, in these milk products and they, they could uh, they could oxidize. The flavor could degrade. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You're going to get yeah. a much lo- longer shelf life on your evaporated and condensed milk if you refrigerate it. Cool. All um, right. So yeah. go ahead. No, no. Next so, so my dogs are barking in the background, so it's appropriate that we talk uh, more about dogs here. Um, <laughs> so this is some feedback from uh, Deep Crimson, and there's a the whole a whole long uh, story here uh, that I but I won't uh, I won't go into too much detail. Um, uh, the the uh, writer does whoops the writer does uh, send us a link uh, which did not uh, did not seem to work here. Let me see if I can copy and paste it. So this is a uh, interesting article from uh, Science Magazine from uh, 2013 on um, how diet shaped dog domestication, which gets back to our discussion about um, uh, raw diets for dogs. Um, so anyway, we'll, we will link uh, we will link to that uh, that article, um, which is uh, entitled "Diet Shaped Dog Domestication" uh, by Elizabeth uh, Pensini from uh, 2013, which is an article that appeared in the journal Science, um, just talking about how um, domestication has shaped um, uh, the, uh, the diet of dogs, which I think is a, is a super interesting article. So we'll, we'll uh, share that with the listeners. Sorry, I was on, uh, I was on mute because my dog is growling. Um, <laughs> By other dogs? Yeah, no, he's, he's on his back and he gets very jealous if I'm not 
petting him. So we've created a monster, basically. So I will I will show you what happens um, here. My foot is currently rubbing his belly, but <laughs> if I stop he, and then I start talking to you for very long, um, he, he won't do it on cue now. Uh, but he he gets very he likes to just note that that hey. Yep, there he is. Um, hey, I'm still here, so don't don't stop petting me. Uh, and welcome again to uh, Dog Safety Talk. Uh, yeah. so perfect, and and so time. I think what you need to work on uh, being able to talk and rub your foot on your dog's belly at the same time. I, it's like, that's like pat, patting your head and rubbing your stomach. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Uh, and hopefully I can uh, I can handle it for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. <laughs> All right. So let's so let's let's move to a very long piece of feedback. I will I will read uh, questions and answers, and then I'll let you weigh in. And uh, this is from another uh, longtime uh, listener and an awesome feedbacker, uh, Austin Book. Uh, and Austin uh, writes, um, "Please share all details freely." Um, uh, my first bit of comment to Austin is that is one heck of a message. So he writes us a really long and detailed message, and I've, I've got my answers interspersed with his questions. So we'll 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 go we'll go until I run out of steam here. So uh, he writes, uh, "Hey guys, I haven't harassed you, so I figured I'd uh, nerd snipe a bit." And boy, does he does he uh, nerd snipe. So uh, first question or first comment is about um, soda and the the need to retort or not retort uh, carbonated. Uh, products um so um you know uh, if if uh let's see let me uh pull out the relevant uh thing so um uh you oh, let's start from the beginning you mentioned a couple of episodes back that you couldn't think how someone might have live and active cultures in a canned soda product because none of them would survive retorting However, you don't have to retort if the product is carbonated. Okay, so his point is that that sodas would be exempt from retorting, so it would be possible for for you to make a product like that. Um, so uh, soda is exempt from the acidified food definition, and so are refrigerated and fermented foods. So if you had, uh, let's say, a fermented uh, kombucha tea product that was, um, you know, refrigerated or was basically, you know, soda that was that had a kombucha culture added to it, you would be exempt from the regulation. So, so that's a that's a that's a good question. So our, our good comment. So um, this brings me to some uh, science behind. The legality questions I'd love to hear your opinions on regarding botulism control. Um, in the U.S., there are a bunch of exemptions to the regulations, but little scientific justification uh, standards or critical limits on many of them. And, and so this question came in at the same time I was teaching a better process control school, and so it really was was perfect timing. Um, so, And he writes, uh, I don't have the advantage of having been through a better process control school class, so these may be answered there. Um, so going through the process, I'd love to pick your brains on these requirements and learn more about their scientific basis. And so uh, criteria one, is the food hermetically sealed? Um, FDA's definition says hermetically sealed container means a container that is designed uh, and intended to secure against the entry of microorganisms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so my my answer, and apologies for for cutting the uh, cutting the question short. Um, the in this case, the risk is really managed by the process that the food receives and by the hermetic seal. And so um, there's, in his question, there's something about adding oxygen. In my opinion, adding oxygen is not a very good way to control Clostridium botulinum risk, uh, especially it might might work as a practice for 
um, uh, liquid foods, but it's not a good one for uh, solid foods because there could be anaerobic or uh, microaerophilic pockets um, for growth in foods that are not homogeneous. Um, and also, I would say that the hermetic seal is there to manage spoilage as well. Um, uh, one interesting microorganism that's cropped up since we started using plastic bottles um, for packaging juice is an organism called Allicyclobacillus. And this is a risk in plastic bottles because uh, oxygen diffuses through the plastic um, and uh, uh, is there's enough oxygen there to allow the organism to grow. Um, uh, criteria two, would it allow the growth of Clostridium botulinum either by naturally having a pH of less than 4.6, uh, tomatoes 4.7, or a water activity less than 0 0.85? Um, no questions here. Um, and again, uh, I think I just uh, pro probably it's a, it's a valid point. I think the greater than and less than signs are switched in, the, in, in his statement. Um, criteria three, is it thermally processed? to render it commercially sterile? Um, okay, not just a comment, not a question. Yep. Uh, criteria four, is it otherwise exempt? Uh, this is my biggest area of issue. Let's go through them one by one. And and he's absolutely right. This criteria four, every time I teach this in a better process control school, I, I teach it um, that this is just, this is policy. This is not, this is not science-based. And so criteria four A is an alcoholic beverage. Um, and so the, the question is, gosh, couldn't alcoholic beverages give people botulism? And he cites a JFP article from 2003 um, showing uh, uh, growth and neurotoxin production in uh, broth with concentrations at up to 4% alcohol. And so the, the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, the, this issue uh, of criteria for a uh, alcoholic beverages being exempt may be because it's just simply regulated by a different agency. And also, right. I would add, it's not a historical problem. In other words, if alcoholic beverages Beverages started like when when Zima, I think it's Zima, right? The the started coming out and was got very popular. If that stuff had caused botulism, believe me, we would have changes to the regulation to address it. Now I realize that not having had a historical problem is not grounds for safety, um, but in the absence or in the, in the presence of a complex food supply and a complex regulatory system uh, where we're prioritizing, we're going to focus the resources on where we definitely see outbreaks. Um, and so uh, I would point out too that the JFP article that he mentioned is in uh, growth media that's spiked with ethanol, not an actually uh, fermented food. And we will link uh, to that, to that JFP article, or at least to the abstract of that JFP article. Um, Criteria four. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, so, so on that, um, I was really kind of interested. I, th this is where I kind of got googly and started thinking about. Okay, so the the alcoholic beverage. What what are the pHs of of you know some of the common alcoholic beverages? And and so beer and wine, we would expect to have a really low pH, like around really around four. But something that I didn't know was that. Um, Vodka has a really high pH, so but also really high alcohol content. But did you know, like, like vodka is like eight eight point two to almost nine. Like, it's really really basic. No, I had no, no. idea. Yeah, so no, this is this is just um, again from from the internet um, where we know everything is uh, is true. Uh, but from many many different sources, when you start looking at some of the spirits and distilled stuff, you end up with. Um, you know, lots of, uh, it, and it's not all vodkas, but, but for whatever reason you can make it very, um, 
you know, very, it, it, you, there are vodkas on the market that have really, really high pH. Huh. Fascinating, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. So, so anyway, so, I mean, I think this is where, and I, I go back to, um, the IFT document that we just talked about and the product evaluation, uh, piece where, um, when we look at these one by one, um, we can find lots of exceptions and what we, what we don't really know, um, clearly are the interactions of all these factors with each other. Right. And, and in some cases we, we have some data on that, but, but having, um, a, a, you know, a pH of, you know, of five and, um, a, an alcohol content of 4% and a, um, you know, so, you know, in carbon dioxide, all of all of those things can uh, can have some synergy in in protecting from microbial contamination growth. So yep, cool. Sorry to I just wanted to jump in. Oh no no, it's probably better if you jump in on on each on each point rather than wait till the end. So um, uh, criteria four B is it a carbonated beverage? He says uh, he writes this one really gets me because I have no idea what mechanism dissolved carbon dioxide would play in inhibiting clostridium. Um, and second, because carbonated is never defined. And yeah, you're right. And there has been some research, and I think we had a back and forth subsequent email on this, um, that, that carbonation, dissolved carbon dioxide does seem to inhibit microorganisms, but it doesn't do it in a very reliable way, or at least uh, it's it, it's not straightforward. I do know that the Combase uh, models uh, do include carbon dioxide uh, for uh, in the headspace for some um, uh, some microorganisms, and so there is there is an effect there. But again, you'd have to be, you know, take care in, in applying those models. Uh, and, and and I don't think uh, it's used. Um, I can tell you for sure it's not used in um, uh, Clostridium botulinum models in Combase or in PMP. Um, do you know what the mechanism is? I don't. Uh, but I know people have uh, explored it, so we could do some searching on the scientific literature of that. Um, is it just because traditionally carbonated beverages naturally drop in pH? Uh, the, the short answer is I don't know. I mean, we'd have to talk to the people that wrote these regulations, um, most of whom are probably either passed away or retired because these regulations go, do go back some time. Um, this might be a good question to talk with uh, Jenny Scott about or, or maybe Don Sink or Mickey Parrish, some of our FDA friends who, who do have to regularly – they didn't write these regulations, uh, but they, they would have to uh, – they do have to in, enforce them and interpret them. So, uh, it's, But it's beyond our expertise um, or beyond my expertise. Um, would it still uh, just because it is traditionally carbonated? Uh, no, sorry, is, is it just because traditionally carbonated beverages naturally drop in pH? If so, why the exemption? Uh, it would be an acidified food with a required process for how much carbon dioxide was dissolved to reach the desired pH. Either way, I can the quote. Either way, it would seem that quote I can see some bubbles. End quote is not a qualitative standard. Um, and yeah, that's a really good question. I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me that that carbonated uh, beverage was not in fact a defined uh, a defined term. Um, yeah. So again, not not sci my answer is not scientific as far as I know. Uh, we do know that carbon dioxide in headspace of food or dissolved uh, uh, oxygen is is in um, food can be inhibitory. Uh, most sodas are very low pH, so not a risk for that reason. Any anything on carbonated beverages from you, Ben? No, my microphone's off. No, no, I don't. Okay. That's not my, not my, not my area. 
Your jam, yeah. Right, jam. This next one actually ah, really is your jam. This is my jam. Criteria for C: Is it a jam, jelly, or preserve? I get this one. This is still reading from his message. I get this one since it's obviously based on water activity and natural acids. Although it's worth noting that the standard of identity, 21 CFR 150, includes no standard on final water activity or pH. Um, yeah, right. and my answer is it may be difficult to get these products to to set uh, if they're not at the proper pH. Uh, based on some research that you and I eventually are going to publish, Ben, um, yeah. is, did, I did uh, pH and water activity measurements on a bunch of products that were provided by a uh, home canner slash small entrepreneur just to see how far they were from um, some of the, you know, the, the, the criteria in that uh, – um, IFT document, and they're pretty far. Um, and then we plotted some of the ones from the outbreaks, uh, including the watermelon jam um, and the cronut jelly. Um, and th- those are were obviously over the line, uh, so very, very different from what a normal person would make, even somebody trying to make a um, uh, a low sugar, uh, a reduced sugar jam. So, uh, any, any comments on this? I'm sure you have. Yeah, some. I do. I do. And, uh, I think this is one that, so I'm really glad that, um, that Austin kind of went through all this stuff. Cause it I, gave me a chance to look at, um, do some Googling and, and find out some of the, the background on this. And I think that jams and jellies and preserves, um, d- there, there are a bunch of traditional things that we think about, which are high acid foods, uh, that are then made into these. But um, and I just sent you a link for yep. for inclusion. Um, we we do know of and it's kind of an old case now, but from 2011 there was an uh, a one case of botulism linked to uh, watermelon jelly um, in British Columbia, and this was a, a you know, like very much a jelly would meet the the standard definition. Um, and as as Austin highlights, it doesn't say anything specifically about pH, but the pH of this product, I think, I don't have it here, but after talking with a couple of folks in British Columbia at the, at the time, um, the pH was somewhere like 5.8 and the water activity was, uh, it, it had not set and the water activity was um, like 0.97, some, something really, really, really high. So it was definitely called a jelly and it would have been, um, you know, exempt as, as per these, um, uh, these definitions. So, um, and I think that this is the the other thing um, that's popped up over time. Um, j- what people call jams, just because you call it a jam, doesn't make it a quote jam, um, and doesn't make it something that that has this um, low water activity, um, uh, high pH situation. Maple bacon jam being a, a really good example of this, which is um, sold. It, it's not as hot as it was two or three years ago, but in many uh, restaurants that, that I go to, um, they're often making their own uh, maple bacon spread that they call a jam and are, are uh, this pro- type of product held at room temperature is linked to a bunch of Staph aureus uh, illnesses um, a while ago. Yeah, and so when back when you researched this, I took that uh, data and I threw it into a spreadsheet, um, and uh, I did I was able to find it. And so the maple maple bacon jam cronut had a pH of five point eight and a water activity of zero point nine seven. Yep. And the the watermelon jelly had a pH of five point five and a water activity of zero point nine five. I was not bad. Um, I was close. I was close about the. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I wasn't listening to what you were saying because I was I knew I had it. I could look it up. So nice. and. If you do, and I, and I made a plot of, uh, again, the, 
the 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 pro on on a water activity scale and a pH scale, and those two products cluster really far away from everything else that was made uh, by this entrepreneur who was again interested in in uh, safety of a variety of low sugar uh, jam products that she was making based on recipes that she was you know getting from the internet and then and then modifying which we don't recommend, but in this particular case um, you know we gave her some some feedback that she was just pretty she's pretty safe. Um, Cool. Uh, certainly not not uh, nearly as risky as the maple bacon jam cronut or the watermelon jelly products. So, uh, going on with uh, with um, uh, Austin's amazing message. Um, let's see, uh, we're down to um, criteria. F- yeah, four D. Is it stored, distributed, and retailed under refrigeration? Uh, Pre-preventive controls, the enforced refrigeration standards were either less than 45 degrees Fahrenheit from CFR or less than 41 degrees Fahrenheit from the food code. However, the minimum temperature for growth of non-proteolytic clostridium botulinum types is uh, 37.9, which reminds me of some very interesting uh, discussions we've had uh, with uh, Veronica Bryant, which which I think we need to talk about on this episode because yeah. it's, it's some, some really good stuff on uh, listeria growth. Um, uh, he says this is explicitly uh, ex- addressed in the seafood HACCP. Does it mean that the clostridium types are only found in seafood? We don't need to control them in other foods. The short answer is yes, they probably are more likely to be found in clostridium. Um, I think that this is not really so much scientific as it is just historical and policy related. Uh, the bottom line is that low acid canned foods and acidified food regulations are for shelf stable foods. And so uh, a refrigerated food is not shelf stable. Therefore, it is excluded from that definition. Um, that said, uh, if you are making a refrigerated food, you still have to manage the Clostridium botulinum risk. And you do that through formulation or through um, uh, you know, uh, challenge testing or processing. I mean, that's, that's the, the simple answer. And again, why it's in the seafood HACCP rule is because there have been outbreaks uh, linked to these mildly processed products that were not given. So the the proteolytic uh, Clostridium botulinum are much more heat resistant uh, and they don't grow at low temperatures. The non-proteolytics um, are less heat resistant and do grow at lower temperatures, but you still have to, uh, if you improperly process a, a, a canned a seafood product, with a very, very mild process, those uh, non-proteolytics can survive. And uh, if you don't properly re- uh, refrigerate the food, you can have, you can have a risk. So uh, any thoughts on 4D? Yeah. So, um, and I guess the, the issue here is that uh, it, the two things that come to mind are the soup linked uh, outbreaks and illnesses that we'd had uh, five or six years ago, actually, it's probably even longer than that now, where a refrigerated Tetra Pak soup had been stored at shelf like at shelf temperature in someone's home. And so I guess my question without you know this this gets a little outside of the the stuff that I focus on but do, for, for those tetra pack low um high pH products is refrigeration just not not the management step? Right right like it, it, can I can I not say that that's what I'm what I'm using and and keep refrigerated becomes the thing that I need people to do uh, to to manage that risk or or does it also have to be um, you know uh, managed in processing or other formulation issues? You know you know the example I'm talking about. 
Yeah. So this is an article or I found an article from NPR from July 2018. Botulism strikes two who tasted spoiled potato soup. Is that uh... Uh, that is not it? Uh, Well, unless it's referring back to a 2011 MMWR article. Uh, which was botulism caused by consumption of commercially yes. produced potato soup stored improperly. Yes. yes. Yep. Okay. So that's yeah, that's it. So, um, w- so would yeah. So would this be is the refrigeration's not enough? I guess is what you're what you're saying. Well, and well, and we know that refrigeration is not a fantastic uh, control, right? Because people, you know, we 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 know that foods that are supposed to be refrigerated aren't always properly right. refrigerated, and so ultimately, the the burden uh, falls to the processor, right? And if you are processing a product. Um, or you're packaging a product that needs to be refrigerated and it doesn't have any subsequent barriers and you cause botulism because your chill chain is not what it's supposed to be or maybe people uh, were not given proper instructions. I mean the other, the other one that, that comes to my mind, uh, which I thought was what you were talking about, was a, I think a, a refrigerated carrot juice product yes, that yeah. caused botulism, right? And so – yeah, I mean, you know, if you're making refrigerated food, um, you you really ought to be careful. I mean, that's the the, the bottom line is you really you really ought to be careful. Uh, well, because, it's you know, you, refrigeration is not a fantastic control. And doesn't okay. So let me look at that that carrot juice. Didn't that have to do with nitrite as well? Like it was a low low nitrite carrot that was that may have. Um, uh, we'll have to look look a little. Yeah, this was this was a yeah. this was 2006 uh, botulism associated with commercial carrot juice, uh, Georgia and Florida. The uh, the the potato soup was Ohio and Georgia. I I think bottom line is don't live in Georgia because you Just, might get botulism. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, I'm just reading the MMWR article. Um, it was something. Yeah, the it's not in there. The Hillsborough County Health Department collected an open 450 milliliter bottle of Bolthouse Farms carrot juice, which had been found by a family member in the hotel room where the patient had been staying during the month before being hospitalized. The hotel room had no refrigerator. The bottle, which had a best if used by date of September 19, 2006, had a different lot number than the bottle associated with the Georgia cases. Uh, uh, September 20, 29th, botulism toxin was identified in the carrot juice. Um, yeah, let me see. So, yeah, and I'll, yeah, yeah, just from, from it, carrot juice has a low acidity with a natural pH of approximately six. Therefore, in the absence of another inhibitor, refrigeration at temperatures lower than 40 degrees Fahrenheit is necessary to prevent germination of C-bot spores and production of bot toxin. Inhibiting C-bot growth in other ways, such as through acidification, can retard its growth uh, in juice that is not properly refrigerated. And I think that... If I remember correctly, and we'll have to dig this up for for next time, that there was something to do with the nitrate concentration in the carrot juice, which naturally would exist as an inhibitor. But these carrots had, um, like the the incoming supplied carrots were lower in nitrate, natural uh, nitrites than um, than than what you know than, than other previous batches. Interesting. Yeah, there's nothing in the CDC article that I found that mentions the word nitrite is not mentioned. Right. So um, we'll have to do a little bit more digging on that. And uh, and now my uh, my lawn crew is outside, so I'm going to try to be on mute so you don't hear those uh, lawnmowers going. It's, you know, this is just a this is it until we can uh, 
until folks uh, sponsor us enough that we uh, – because we, we have zero sponsors um, and we never really ask for them. Uh, until they sponsor us enough that we can go to, like, studios and and, and maybe, uh, you know, every two weeks fly to one pl- – maybe we'll just start recording in Hawaii in, in like, a Faraday box um, where nothing can get in from the outside. <laughs> I, th- I don't think that that's how fair. I think Faraday cages are to screen you from electromagnetic radi- radiation. I don't think that they block out sound. Don't you think it would? <laughs> no. Um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not finding. I'm not. The articles, the articles on carrot juice and botulism that I'm finding don't have nitrite, and the ones that have uh, botulism and nitrite don't have carrot juice. I'll so have to find it. I'm, you'll have. Yeah, it's not. It's yeah. not something that's going to be easily found on the on the internet quickly. So, no. um, all right. So let's get. Let's go back to um, uh, this uh, uh, lengthy email message. Okay. So. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, but criteria five is the food modified to become an acidified food with a final pH less than four point six. Again, the critical limit is obvious. I'm not sure exactly why the five log reduction standard is there, given that we can find vegetative pathogens in almost any food. I don't understand why the lethality standard is applied here, and therefore wouldn't apply to foods exempted in criteria. For especially refrigeration, juice HACCP rule makes it clear this is just as important for refrigerated products. Yeah, and remember that these rules are not necessarily based on science, and they were made at different times by different people when uh, what we knew about the science was different. Um, I've said it before. I will say it again. The five-log five log reduction is arbitrary, okay? It's not based on science. Uh, six logs will be safer than five. Four logs will not be as safe as uh, five, right? So six is safer. Four is not as safe. Um, acidified foods are pH controlled for clostridium botulinum, and they're pasteurized to control other risks, right, uh, like E. coli, salmonella, listeria, et cetera. And, and again, let me reiterate, uh, the LACF and acidified food regulations are from the 1970s. Juice HACCPs from the 2000s, preventive controls from 2010. All of these rules are different, and they are uh, mutually inconsistent, Uh, or at least if you try to compare them uh, side by side, they're mutually inconsistent. What FDA will tell you – so now I'm listening to this podcast pretending that I'm Mickey Parrish or Jenny Scott, right? They will tell you that they're not inconsistent. They're just regulating different foods, right? And that's that's why um, uh, juice is exempted from preventive controls and why LACF is exempted from preventive controls because they're covered by existing rules. And and all of those are going to be different from FDA model food code, right? And that's why for, for years we had a refrigeration temperature of 45 um, uh, for, for uh, processed foods and 41 in the food code because the food code was uh, ad- adapting to changing science, whereas the, the 45 degrees Fahrenheit refrigeration was codified and was harder to change. So, yeah, anything you want to say on that? Nope. Nope. That's, okay. You nailed it. Okay, good. Good. Hopefully we won't get angry emails from, uh, from Jenny and Mickey. Um, they should – I hope we do. I hope they just not angry emails. Oh, just to clarify, no, they're clarifying. Well, they're, they're, yeah, they're, well, Mickey, Mickey will probably say something. I don't think Jenny listens, uh, but they're both much too nice and polite um, uh, people to ever be angry at us, right. at least in public. So, um, okay, and then he goes on. There's a long, a long uh, list to say. In addition to the uh, above, which is codified in CFR, FDA's inspection guide includes following exemptions for inspectors to take note of. And he, it's a, there's a long list of uh, uh, exemptions from uh, FDA's inspection guide, which is I'm sure is fascinating reading. I've actually never read it, but it talks about 
acid foods, alcohol, and again, sort of reiterating the previous list, acid foods, alcoholic beverages, fermented foods, foods processed uh, under uh, USDA FSIS, foods with a water activity of 0.85 or below, foods that are not thermally processed, foods that are not packed in hermetically sealed containers, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, again, this is more about um, just the nature of the way that our food supply is regulated, um, which is it's regulated in boxes that are not necessarily based on science, uh, but they're just based on historical criteria or, you know, again, things where we had a problem with uh, low acid canned foods causing botulism. So we got regulations around that. And then we got uh, outbreaks related to juice. And so we got, you know, we got regulations around that. So, yeah. So, um uh, he provides very nicely. He provides a link to the uh, uh, FDA inspections guides, and so we'll we'll most definitely link to that in case anybody is a super food safety nerd and wants to read that. And again, um, I mean that's yeah that's that's uh, that's that's my my answer to this very very long email. I'm sure I didn't do it justice, but uh, yeah, there you go. No, but thanks for like chiming in. And Austin, uh, for those who I, I Austin's someone who I've. Uh, uh, interacted with and followed for quite some time on Twitter. So for, for listeners who are interested, uh, he can be found at at fur farm and fork on Twitter. Um, and so, yeah, thanks for, yeah. thanks for taking the time to, um, to go through this. And, and again, this was generated by our discussion about, um, uh, you know, a live culture soda, um, being, being advertised on the, on the Twitter and talked about a few weeks ago. Yep. Yeah. Oh, and I, I will say also, um, I don't think he listens, but um, the there is somebody that works for a company that makes uh, kombucha tea, uh, which is a, again a live culture soda-like product. Um, he's not my graduate student, but he's getting a PhD in the department, and I'm going to be on his committee. And so I really enjoyed. He gave a seminar on the topic. Uh, we had some really good discussions, and uh, I'm going to be on his PhD committee. So I look forward to, to learning more. I think that we're only going to see more of these types of food on the marketplace and it's going to generate for sure more discussion for us yeah um moving to another uh uh sort of self-generated follow-up uh one of the podcasts that you and i both listened to <laughs> dubai friday had a conversation about a paper that was um in, that was published uh, um in june uh, about linking uh, toxo-gondi uh, infection and entrepreneurship behaviors across individuals and, and countries. And so the, the conversation that went on in Twitter and in, online in uh, news posts and then um, a little bit uh, in Dubai Friday was um, uh, this, this idea that, uh, that one of the um, – one of the symptoms or identified symptoms of, of toxo uh, infection is uh, risky behaviors, and um, and then uh, you know often tragically um, you know when when the symptoms do present themselves, it leads to uh, some you know long term mental health issues potentially and, and other other things, and and for that reason, toxo has been um, you know w- one of the things that I've been really interested in is especially as it becomes not not from the um, uh, you know, environmental um, uh, uh, um, side of things, like with with cat litter, but with with food and especially pork. Um, and so this, uh, I had not seen this this article. And so when Dubai Friday um, started talking about it, uh, I also went and found it, and then you found it at the same time. So uh, the question that that Max posed was: Is this legit? Um, you know, is it, it, it does Toxo? 
cause people to become high risk entrepreneur entrepreneurs. And, and you really uh, did a really great, great job in, in responding to, to Merlin uh, about this, basically saying um, that there is not a, um, it's not a causation issue. It's really a correlation and that there's, uh, you know, it's, it's a paper that's in a, a pretty decent, reputable source and that, um, it, you know, it looks like there are some, um, self-reported, uh, entrepreneurial intent and then actual activities. Um, and that the fear of failure, you know, these are the three, three things. So more, more likely linked in, uh, um, intent to be an entrepreneur, more likely linked to actual entrepreneurial, uh, activity and less likely self-reported fear of failure for individuals who, um, have been infected by a toxo. Uh, and again, not a, you know, kind of an interesting, um, uh, situation. So what do you, what's your, what's your take on this? Yeah, I think you've, you've uh, summarized it pretty well. Um, let me just sort of basically read from my message to, to Merlin. And I, and again, I, I used, I used email because this really was a, a little longer than would need to go into a tweet. Um, I don't, I don't know how much they've talked about this on the show. I don't know how much, um, um, Max actually, um, uses email. Right. Uh, and, I, and, and I don't have his email address. Uh, I know Alex does have an email address, but, but doesn't, at least the one that I have doesn't, doesn't monitor it too much. So, uh, I think figured the best chance of getting it to them was to get it to, to Merlin. I don't think they talked about it in follow-up, so this may be the only follow-up um, that, that you're getting. But uh, again, a lot of people have – a bunch of people have found this show through that show. So here's uh, – we're going to do follow-up uh, for other, other podcasts <laughs> on this show. And I, I still, which reminds me, I still have a, a follow up to 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 talk about um, to, to John Syracuse um, about uh, reconcilable differences, but uh, that's that's for another day. Um, okay, so um, first of all, it's a reputable journal, right? It's the Proceedings yeah. of the Royal Society B, um, which is not inferior to the Proceedings of the Royal Society A. It's just uh, for <laughs> better different than topic. C. So better than- well, no, no, there, this, it's not. <laughs> there's not a ranking implied then. Um, so. So it's a reputable journal. The researchers are from reputable institutions. Um, the, they, they, you know, I always look for odds ratios or confidence intervals. And so the, basically the idea here is that if you want, uh, you want an odds ratio that does not include the number one, because the, if the, if the odds ratio includes one, that means that it's basically the, there's no difference. And so, uh, there's no, there would be no difference in risk taking behavior. Now, in this particular case, they do have an odds ratio that does not include one. And so that means that there is a, the, the correlation is quote unquote real according to the typical standards that we use, uh, that we use in science. Um, but uh, as I pointed out and as you pointed out and as the authors themselves point out, um, this is correlation, not causation. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll read, to, uh, read a quote from the authors themselves. Quote, given the correlational nature of the study, observed patterns may not be causal. For example, high-risk takers could, bo- could be more likely to be both op- entrepreneurial and exposed to Toxoplasma gondii, i.e. by consuming raw undercooked meat, therefore driving the correlation. So that, and that's essentially what I, the, 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 the comment I arrived on, I arrived at before even reading what the authors wrote. And so um, there's correlation. It's not necessarily causation. Um, but again, then the authors do in that same paragraph, they do go on to, to kind of say that while it might be 
correlation. We think there's a variety of reasons why it's it's it, it might be causation, which is which is fine. I mean, they're entitled to their opinion. Um, uh, and then again, uh, because I didn't know if they they had it on Dubai Friday, I sent a copy of the actual PDF, which uh, it's not available for free on the internet. So you do need to use it, go to a library or or um, uh, find somebody that has access to a library to to get that. So. Um, anyway, it's, it was a good it was a good uh, a good article and it was a good discussion and, and hopefully we've uh, we've furthered the the discussion here. In, indeed, uh, Mongolian grills. We got another feedback on this. You yes. know, you know about uh, you've been to a Mongo- Mongolian style grill. I, I have been to a Mongolian style grill and in fact also the uh, Harvest Cafe, which is closed for the summer that we've talked yes. about. It's the healthy cafe uh, at Rutgers. Um, they have a Mongolian grill style uh, station there. I'm a fan of the Mongolian grill style food. My my children are not, and I don't think I have been to one in uh, in ten plus years. But we used to go. We used to drive from Guelph to Waterloo to go to the um, the actual uh, aptly named Mongolian Grill. Um, and so I uh, received a you and I received a tweet um, from uh, Brian Brazovich, uh, who's a listener of the show and said, um, wow, at a popular chain of self-prep communal style grill, Mongolian-ish last night, I was cringing with anxiety. So many opportunities for cross-contamination, allergen mingling, trying to recall if there's a food safety talk episode on that. And I said, nope, not yet. Added for next episode's discussion. And here we are. Yeah, so I would say if you are uh, if you have an allergy to shrimp um, and you are in a Mongolian grill and they have uh, shrimp, um, I would be careful about that. Yeah. Uh, now, now maybe some of these allergens are going to be inactivated by heat, uh, maybe not. Um, uh, yeah, I mean it's it, for sure. I I like them. Uh, I do I do like the fresh nature of the food that they're preparing. I'm more concerned because because I don't have any known food allergies. I'm much more concerned that they're properly cooking the meat. Uh, the good news is is that the pieces of meat they don't use a thermometer in in most cases. The good news is the pieces of meat are small and they typically cover them and they're cooked for a, a relatively long time. So, um, and it's I, really I, I hot. Get, right? It, yeah, and I, there might be some cross contamination if they don't have good sanitation. I've never. And again, the nice thing about these Mongolian grill type operations is it's typically all right out in front of you and you can see them cooking the foods. You can see if there's any cross-contamination. Um, I, I don't think it's a terribly high-risk situation. Um, I, uh, I would – I would. I'm going to still keep eating them at them. I'm not going to change my my behavior. So, but for sure, if you have an allergy, for sure you want to you want to be careful. Yeah, right. Absolutely, and I think that that's you know that's that's where I arrive at it as well. And I want to um, you know calling back to uh, someone who I talked about earlier, uh, Pete Snyder, and you and Todd actually talked uh, at. And an IAFP, one of the first ones I went to, probably 2002 or 2003, about street foods in um, developing countries. And there was an entire symposium on it, and maybe we'll be able to find a, a link to this. Um, but one of the things that, if I remember correctly, that struck me about this conversation that Pete talked about was traditional foods um, in, in you know, street foods or um, other things like this are um, – are often not linked to foodborne illnesses because of the preparation style and and manner and, and the um, not not sure which sort of came first, but small pieces of meat that are heated on really really hot hot 
um, uh, you know, areas and not, and, and, um, you know, the Mongolian grill that I've, that I've been to, they use like these sticks to like, make sure that the, that meat is spread apart. And if there are big, big pieces, they kind of like beat it down. Um, Pete kind of made the case to say that, that really, really, really impacts the, um, how well that food's cooked. And, and that's probably one of the reasons why we don't, um, associate that, that style of cooking with, with foodborne illness, um, you know, typically. So, yeah, cool. Yeah. And yeah. And so, so thanks. uh, Thanks to Brian for the the question. Obviously, if you, I mean, it doesn't mean that there's no risk, right? Like so many things, uh, be, be observant, um, use the fact that very often these foods are prepared out in the open, pay attention. And, you know, if you, if you do like this style of food or if you don't, or you you find yourself at a Mongolian grill, take a look and watch and see, um, if you see any, uh, cross-contamination, uh, opportunities. And and then if you do, uh, write to us, let us know. Absolutely. Um, what else? It's a follow up. Um, do we, you want to talk about, um, oh, I, I do, I do at some point want to talk about, um, bacteria becoming more tolerant of alcohol based hand sanitizers, but I, I need to get the peer reviewed research. And so I'm going to, uh, maybe, uh, you save that as follow up for another episode. So, um, we don't need to talk about that now. Um, but I do, I do want to talk a little bit about, um, um, uh, question from a fan of the show, uh, Veronica, um, uh, Bryant, who, who, um, wants us to help her convince regulators in North Carolina that, uh, foods won't automatically become toxic if they, uh, get exposed to temperatures above 41 for even a fraction of a second. Yes. Can you, uh, you want me to set this up or can you? No, I'll set it up. Um, and so, 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 um, one of, uh, the here's a, a little bit of history um north carolina uh up until about 2011 i think it was 2011 2012 our food law um in restaurants was based on the 1976 unicode before the food code i think it was or um and i may be getting some of that uh incorrect but it was really 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 old with amendments and in um uh, as the food code was adopted by reference and uh, when the process was happening, it was the 2009 food code. One of the things that um, th- that was made as a concession to the industry was t- we were going to move from 45 degrees Fahrenheit for refrigeration um, with a three-day hold to 41 degrees uh, Fahrenheit Um it, 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 well, sorry, it was 45 degrees for refrigeration with seven days, and we were moving to 45 degrees for three days or 41. And then that had a phase out to allow um, companies to uh, get newer equipment that would hold 41 degrees. And now we're almost at the day, January 1st, 2019, a refrigerated TCS food will need to be at 41 degrees or below in North Carolina. And so um the the regulatory question becomes how how do we how do we handle this you know from a from a risk standpoint if a food is not is it not at 41 degrees but is at 42 or 43 degrees fahrenheit uh, do we um should it all be disposed it, you know it's out of it's out of compliance with our with our law and, but but is it risky and if it's not risky. So part B of this question is, so what do we, what do we do with it? How long 
um, at 42 degrees or 43 degrees is, quote, too long or not long enough or whatever? And how do we handle these these thresholds? And it's a really it's a really interesting question. And I want to sort of remind everybody in this conversation, as I think Veronica's reminded folks, is that um, on December 31st, 2018, there will still be foods in North Carolina legally uh, that are held at 45 degrees Fahrenheit. And then on January 1st, those foods need to be cooled to 41 degrees. And they're not any safer or less safe probably um, when, this, when, when we're all singing old langs on. Old Lang Son, not Old Lang Son, um, right? So, so it's how do we how do we handle this transition? What's the best way to communicate this to our local regulators? Um, and and what's the um, what what is what's the public health science say? Right, and so uh, and and I spoke uh, I spoke on the uh, conference for food protection emergency action document. Uh, and the times and the temperatures that are allowed in that document um, at a recent food safety and defense conference uh, in North Carolina. Um, and so basically what I did to try to answer Veronica's question or to, to provide Veronica with information she could use to talk to her uh, her colleagues was I ran some combase predictions. And so I, I ran combase predictions for Listeria monocytogenes under ideal growth conditions, so pH 6.8, water activity 0.99. I assumed that the food was held at the target temperature um, for the complete time. So in other words, it's not a cold food that's warming up. It's just it's, it, the food is at this temperature or this temperature or this temperature for various periods of time. Also, um, I assumed that the cells started to grow right away. In other words, we're not going to factor in lag time. So that's a conservative assumption. Um, ba again, basically the same consumptions as in the CFP emergency action document. All right. And then what I did was I said, okay, so – and then, oh, and then, and then because the, the North Carolina rule talks about nine hours, I said, well, okay, so how much is listeria going to grow at 40 degrees, at 41 degrees, at 45 degrees, and at 50 degrees over nine hours? And so basically um, at 50 degrees, there's about a half a log increase. At 45 degrees, there's a 0.3 log increase. At 41, it's a 0.19 log increase. And at 40 degrees, it's a 0.17 log increase. Um, so um, and then basically to think about this, it's, it's, it's I think, useful or instructive to also think about uh, log how log increases relate to doublings. And so a 0.3 log increase is exactly one doubling. So one cell turning into two cells or 10 cells turning into 20 cells. A 0.6 log increase is two doublings. So one cell going to four cells. A 0.9 log increase is uh, one cell going to, to through three doublings. So one cell turning into eight cells. And 1.2 logs is four, four doublings or one cell going to 16 cells or so just a little more than a one log increase. Um, what her regulators seem to be struggling with is the idea that there's any risk at all, right? And so this gets to the question right. of hazard versus risk or, or quantitative risk-based thinking. And so I, I, it occurred to me, like, let's talk about the risks that these foods already pose. Exactly. With no change to the law. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so let's look at how long, okay, does it take to get a uh, or let's look at the predicted increase of listeria monocytogenes at nine hours at 50 degrees Fahrenheit because that's what they're so uncomfortable with right and so basically uh, and then and then compare that 
to the log increases that you would experience at other temperatures, okay? And so, again, as I said before, um, the uh, you get a, a 0.5 log increase at uh, 9 hours at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? And so the question is, how long do you have to go at these other temperatures to get an increase in risk or an increase in listeria concentration of 0.5? Well, it turns out that... Uh, based on the model predictions, at 45 degrees Fahrenheit, it takes 15 hours to reach the same level of risk. At 41 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what the current code mandates, it takes 23.7 hours. And at 40 degrees, which is in current compliance, you know, more than what you need for compliance with the current code, you have you can you can keep that food at 26.5 hours. And so, the question is, if you are not willing to accept the risk of, of nine hours at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, then you are also not willing to accept that that same food be stored at 40 degrees Fahrenheit for 26.5 hours. And so what that means, if, if you, if, if, since those two things are equivalent and you've already told me that you're not comfortable with 10 hours at 50, what that means is that grocery stores basically have to throw out all of the food after about a day under refrigeration, which is ludicrous. Right, right. Right? And so uh, – or you could you could ask the question in a different way and you could say, well, how long are you willing to let these <laughs> grocery stores store their food? Um, and again, you could look at this – let's say the shelf life of milk as a typical example, even though it's for, for quality, not for safety. And you could back into the actual number of hours at 50 degrees uh, where, where you would be comfortable storing that food. I didn't do that second calculation because I was more interested in, in telling them that – that basically the the risk of storing food at 50 degrees for nine hours is the same as storing a that same food for 24 hours under good refrigeration uh, one day under good refrigeration conditions and so she seemed to think that was helpful we haven't heard back whether it was actually helpful in uh, convincing uh, any of her uh, colleagues but uh, uh, anyway that's that's for another day yeah no and one of the things that that I so. This is where I'm going to weigh in on how, how I would regulate it because I try not to do this as much as possible. And, uh, but, but here's, here's what I would do. I would definitely, definitely, um, note down on the inspection form that the food was out of compliance, that it was above 41 degrees, right? Whether it's 42 or 45 or whatever, it's out of compliance. But if it were at 42 degrees, I would just apply instead of, um, suggesting that that restaurant throws out all that food, I would be able to look because we, we require date marking to look at when it was, when it was packed. And if it was within a day and it's sitting at 42 degrees, I would say, you don't have to throw this out, but you've lost two points. And, and, you know, so, so you're not, you're not looking at, um, uh, and, and this is where I think why I'm probably not a regulator because they probably won't do that. Mm-hmm. But, but that, that's where we're, we're, I'm trying to meld the, here's the requirement for the law and here's the public health risk. Because if it's, as long as it's within those three days and it's at 42, 43, it's not above 45, we're, we're, we're no riskier. The food is no riskier than it was the week before right? Yeah. That, that we yeah. allowed. Yeah, exactly. And, and we didn't have a problem with that. Right. So don't, don't, don't worry about whether they, so in, in our case, um, I think that would be a priority foundation 
and I'm just making stuff up on that's the right term, but Veronica will, will clarify this, I'm sure, via Twitter. But I think that would be like you go from a, a, a 100 to a 96. It's a you know a temperature abuse product. You're going to lose your four points, which is not good, but use you know, use the food within a couple of days or within – like use the food as long as it's within those those three days. And, right. and, and show right. this and say here's why. Here's why it's okay. Yeah, exactly, and and that and that makes sense because that that it it penalizes the restaurant because they were obviously doing something that they shouldn't have been doing, but at the same time it avoids food waste and it manages food safety risk appropriately. So that's that's a win for everybody, right? Um, and, and remember that those numbers and those calculations I was I was giving are all very conservative. Right, right. So, yeah, so you're, is... you're 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 managing risk based on being so far away from that risk, and so anyway, it's a uh, Hopefully, I've injected a little bit of science and a little bit of logical decision making into the process. But it was really it was it was fun. It was fun to do. Um, uh, I, it's not, unfortunately, it's not something I. It results in a peer reviewed publication. There's just not enough substance there. Um, but it does. It you know, and the podcast it, it makes a good venue for for sharing that. Right, right, right. Well, maybe there's somewhere to to to, to write this up and 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 sort of say here's how we would approach this. When if you know and and send it to like a journal uh, in, uh, in the Niha Journal was a journal of environmental health as a yeah something 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 cool um I think you you've got to I gotta go you gotta, gotta go train. and I gotta I gotta go um as well so why don't we call that a show I think it's a show all right thanks Don um and uh, as always folks if you listen to us and you like what we talk about or even if you don't like what we talk about. Go to iTunes and rate us um, and give us feedback. And listeners, uh, you know, as as you can tell, we take this feedback really, you know, really seriously. It's important to us uh, to to help answer some of these questions, and and it often makes up uh, a big portion of what we're going to talk about. So uh, keep the feedback coming in via email and rate us and all that good stuff. So yeah, and if and if you think if you think this show is too long, please tell us that. But also please realize that uh, it's not going to change what we do. No, and you can listen to it on two times speed if you're not already. Or, or you know, here's a, here's a suggestion. If it's too long for you, listen to half of it once and then listen to half the other half a Later. different time. So two shows. Two shows for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll talk I think to it's you. a show title. I think that is. I'll talk to you later, Don. Bye. Bye. Yep, that's the show title.
two shows for the price of one. And I'll find some good uh, – something good for that. And then this is mine, and I've been recording, yep. so everything should be fine. Um, all right. Let me look at calendars. 20th. Um, what, is, uh, what does the 20th look like for you? Looks good. I will be um, uh, on campus that day because I've got a short course running. Oh, we have writing buddies that day too, don't we? We do, we do. So I have I have two two nice little gaps where we could do something. Okay. Um, from 10 a.m. until 1 p.m., I'm wide open, or from 1.30 until 4.30. Well, I'm I'm holding the afternoon for another meeting. Uh, so let's do, let's do 10 to one. I will probably end up doing, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I've got to be over at the short course at noon to inspect the quality of the lunch, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, official, yeah, that's official that duty. Works. Yeah. We can, somebody's got to do it, Ben. I know it's exactly F S T number. Let's go back to 162. 162. Yep. There you go. Oh, where did it go? Uh, Monday, August 20th. That's uh, Danny's birthday. So oh, we'll be, happy birthday, Danny. We'll celebrate uh, with the podcast. <laughs> um, cool. I think that's it. All right. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to send some stuff uh, to you and Donna to share on my behalf at the FSPCA thing oh, later this afternoon. So, so look for that. And then I hear, I, I hear you're having dinner with somebody that we know who we shouldn't, for OPSEC reasons, say who it is. Yeah, let's just say uh, somebody that, that we mentioned on this podcast uh, might uh, might be having uh, dinner with me tonight. And there's lots of, we mentioned lots of people, so yeah, so figure it out. Good luck figuring it out. Yeah, uh, we'll say hi to to that somebody for me, and uh, I will. Uh, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. All right, bye bye, bye bye. <laughs>